WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 365. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1776 in Philadelphia, PA. Today's show is recorded on the 7th of March, 2019. In today's episode, the National Transportation Safety Board recovers the cockpit flight recorder from an air freight jet which crashed in Texas, killing three people. And an airline passenger tries to bring a rocket grenade launcher on board a flight in his checked baggage. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plane Tales, capture prone. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger. Flight 365 is ready for pushback. Hello, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, and it's an aviation podcast, which means that we're going to be talking about aviation news and covering your feedback. And joining me from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. Well, that Jeff. Hi. Uh, oh, I don't know. Which Jeff am I talking to? I, oh, this is so weird. Uh, hell. <laughs> you spoiled it. Yep. Well, okay. Well, I, I have just thought I was seeing no that. choice but to. Hang on a minute. One is very handsome. <laughs> Which one is the question? All right. That's our guest host music. And as. Captain Nick just alluded to there are two Jeffs here. We have the handsome Captain Jeff with me, Colonel Jeff. Uh, he is a former U.S. Air Force F-15 Eagle driver and current captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier as well. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Jeff. Good to see that you're in town, got together, had a nice lunch, uh, and uh, glad to be here for the show. Yeah, I'm glad that you're here, too. Uh, normally this is where we'd be, of course, we'd already have introduced Dr. Steph, but she is stuck in Charlotte traffic, making her way home to her home studio. She'll be joining us just as soon as she can once she arrives at her lakeside cottage, um, recording studio. What is this? Evernote cannot be opened during installation. I do not want to, uh, I love computers. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we look forward to uh, Dr. Steph joining us soon. And in the meantime, we're definitely going to need HR today. Yeah. So, hey, um, you've been on the show before, Colonel Jeff. But for those who are new to the show and are wondering who this good looking, handsome Captain Jeff is, tell us about yourself. Well, as Jeff mentioned before, uh, I served in the Air Force flying primarily F 15s. I did the uh, air to air and the air to ground version. Uh, did 22 years, retired, got hired by a major shortly thereafter. I'll call them Ajax. It's an Acme competitor. Um, we are not based in Atlanta. We're based in Dallas. You can figure that out. And uh, I've discovered Jeff uh, 
at podcast number one <laughs> when it was Catholic Pilot, and I've been listening ever since. Uh, love the show. Love providing feedback, and uh, happy to join when I can when I get invited like this. Uh, Jeff just happened to be in town. I live in the Philadelphia area, and uh, it's always great to be here. I've made a lot of friends through uh, the community, learned a lot, provided a lot of feedback to the podcast, and uh, just great being here. This is like ground zero APG community member right here. Number one, seniority number one. Yeah, we were discussing this at lunch. I actually had to wait for the second one to come out. <laughs> he listened to my very first podcast ever. So that's cool. Yeah. Just a good friend. Good friend of mine. And they were only 20 minutes long. Yeah, well, <laughs> let's not talk about that. <laughs> Um, so anyway, that Jeff and I even cover the intro. I know. Yeah. <laughs> We'd still be playing the intro music. I think, uh, what intro music there wasn't any in those days. <laughs> yeah. I thought I did. Didn't I have yeah. some intro music? Yeah, it was real short. I should probably, said, yeah, okay, I should probably find some, uh, Archive. examples of it. Um, yeah. yeah. May not have had, you know, I'm sure I had music. It just wasn't as, when you get to 400, you need to play CP one. Okay. Nah, that'd be too embarrassing. No, it wouldn't. It'd be it'd be deja vu, man. It'd be great. Get closer to the microphone. It'd be it'd be so cool to have, you know, one or two of those initial ones. Yeah. So well we'll see. We'll take it into consideration. Captain Nick, how have you been, sir? Yes, sir. Uh fine until I wake up this morning. My back's killing me. Uh but apart from that, yeah, I'm looking after house and home, trying to organize everything because the lovely wife is off at the Huge international dog show that uh, is in the UK called Crufts. So I'm uh, uh, at home looking after our three, who are too old, scatty, or hairy to participate in such prestigious places, <laughs> competitions. Apart from that, absolutely fine. Thanks very much. Been a little busy. Uh, mm -hmm. Popped up to see the lovely uh, Rob Simmons. Uh, at St. Benedict's School. Now, he's a brilliant guy. He's a great fan of the APG, and uh, he spends his spare time running an aviation group at his school, um, which I think is fabulous. And uh, um, last year, he asked if I would come down and do a talk, which I did, and then this year, it can't have been too bad because he invited me back. So uh, I went down there and uh, chatted to the kids there, they're, they're quite young, but uh, I think if you get them young, they have a good chance of dragging them into the light. Right. They don't know what they're getting into is basically what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, that, um, that's the idea. I see some audio in here from your visit with Rob Simmons, the headmaster. Yeah, there, please. That'd be great. All right. Let's play it. Jeff, it's Captain Nick here. I'm here at St. Benedict School again. Remember last year I gave a talk to the kids and we're here with the aviation group. At the moment, it's just the lovely Rob Simmons, who you will recall we met at Farnborough last year. Rob, just say a quick hello to the uh, APG crew. Absolutely. Uh, greetings to uh, Liz, uh, Dr. Steph, Captain Dana, and of course, Captain Jeff. Now, I hear, Rob, that there's a chance you might be at some point in the future, when you retire, looking at changing your occupation. What's that all about? Yeah, at some point in the future. I'm not sure when that's going to be. But um, yeah, I definitely have it in mind to, uh, to become a flight instructor. And that would combine my love of teaching with my love of flying and would be absolutely the perfect way to end my working days. It would be brilliant. It's even something you could do part-time if you wanted to carry on teaching until you were old and grey. Absolutely, or possibly even do a little bit of travelling with my lovely wife, Diana, as well. You'd be a natural at that, having spent most of your life as a teacher. 
Um, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I'm very excited about it. Um, it, will, it will certainly be a, uh, quite a challenge, but I think I'm, I'm up to it. Brilliant. Well, we wish you all the luck. And as, of course, uh, we always say to people who are taking up flying uh, seriously, um, please keep advised as to how you get on. I definitely will do so. Thanks very much. Well, Jeff, that was the lovely Rob Simmons and his uh, wonderful kids in the aviation group at St. Benedict's uh, School. And uh, with that, back to you in the studio. Well, thank you, Nick. And uh, I was kind of hoping to hear from the kids. We love you, Captain Jeff. Oh, Thank there you. They are. I love you guys too. <laughs> they must have been listening. What, but what do you think about the uh, the show? You sure they weren't talking to me? We love the airline pilot guy show. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well done, kids. <laughs> Brilliant. Awesome. All right. Um, hmm. Let's see here. Anything else going on in your life besides visiting well, the only- St. Benedict School? Uh, only that I'm heading off to Washington this time next week, so it'll be Thursday. We might get a show in prior, but uh, it's going to be a little difficult for me because I have a couple of ops days, which means I have to go across to Gatwick and sit in classrooms uh, for two solid days. Uh, um, but I'm heading off to Washington on the 14th, and uh, if there's anyone around at the D.C. area who wants to come to uh, Adams Morgan for a beer or two. It looks like we're getting a little bit of a meetup going there. So I'll keep it up in uh, Slack, all the details, and I'll try and post something on Twitter and Facebook uh, when we get a a, a venue sorted. And, uh, yeah, that would be fun. Excellent. Um, I have a note here that said uh, something about a shout-out for Brian Tinker. Oh, yes. Uh, I was uh, on the bus uh, heading back to the car park after my last trip and met a lovely cabin crew lady who said, oh, you're the bloke that does the, uh, hell, helps out with the podcast. My uh, other half, Brian Tinker, he's a great fan, and it would be real nice if you give him a shout-out. So uh, there you go, Brian. Um, he Apparently he's caught the syndrome and uh, he's listening or trying to listen to every single show. So uh, good luck yeah. with that, Brian. He Bless says he heart. hasn't found a cure yet, but I don't know. I don't think there is one quite. Mm. We haven't discovered one yet. Just go around the ceiling. Yeah, go around <laughs> yeah, the ceiling. <laughs> That's a little think, painful. That, oh, yeah, Do we still have that commercial? Hey, let's take, take a listen. Why, hello there. My name is Miami Hick. And I'm here to talk to you today about an embarrassing subject that no one likes to talk about, APG syndrome. Do you have a constant pain in your neck from always looking up at airplanes? Have you tried to grow your own Captain Jeff mustache? Do you think of Miami Rick every time you hear a cricket? Think of Captain Nick when you hear a frog croak. Think of Dana whenever you eat Boston baked beans. Do you think of Dr. Steph whenever you get stuck with a needle? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you are suffering from APG syndrome. We'll suffer no more. Introducing Go Around the Ceiling. With only 36 daily doses of an easy-to-swallow pill, you can be free of your symptoms with Go Around the Ceiling. Talk to your doctor today and find out if Go Around the Ceiling is right for you. 
Like all medicine, Bilirinosilin has side effects which include headache, nausea, vomiting, stomach bleeding, bleeding from the ears, nose, and eyes, uncontrolled diarrhea, stomach cramps, yellowing of the teeth, hair, and toenails, warts, hair loss, dry mouth, constipation, and stomach cramps. But it's worth it. <laughs> Been a while since we've you get, heard. You get stomach cramps twice, so that's really nasty. Because you get them twice. Yeah. yeah. You get the first round and then the second round uh, in between yeah. bouts of uncontrolled diarrhea. <laughs> But yeah, and no, you only have to take it thirty six times per day. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> okay, we're working on something better. <laughs> Hope so. <laughs> hey, you know what? I just heard something which is very important. Our APG crew member, our producer, our production assistant, Miss Liz Piper in Toronto, is celebrating something today—the anniversary of her birth. Yes. I heard it she's is 21. Liz's 21st birthday. Yay! Okay. So we need to sing happy birthday. Happy, happy birthday, birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Liz. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday to you. Okay, where did that come from? <laughs> really? I'm that was that was uh that was my Siri thing. Not Siri. Is it cool? <laughs> We're sitting here going, how did Liz get on the hangout? <laughs> it did sound like Liz. It did. And then I'm thinking, well, maybe that's Jilly. And then I went to your to the screen and I'm going, I thought it can't be Jilly, she's not she's there. She's not there. That is crazy. Did it just kind of start doing it on its own? And we know Steph can't sing. <laughs> <laughs> That's my secret. I ha- I can I I have good mental um uh, you know connection with my Amazon device. So. Wow, and it was almost was it in the same key that we were singing yeah, too? Pretty much. I think. Well, there you go. It's close. Amazing, isn't it? Oh, very cool. Well, happy birthday, Liz. Happy birthday, Liz. Yes. And uh, let's see. And it's also Jordan Bouse's birthday. Uh, Jordan, I think. Didn't you say? Somebody Somebody, said Jordan Bounce. Yeah, it was Jordan. And then uh, Tom Dugan, the dispatcher at Acme. uh, Tomorrow is his birthday. And anybody else have birthdays around? A lot of people have birthdays around this time of year, apparently. Okay. Yeah. Steph says she didn't have to sing. But you know what? (laughs) Steph can sing. She's, She's a liar. She can sing. I've heard her. Okay. So, wanted to make sure we acknowledged this special day for Liz. And what better way to celebrate your birthday than to be here with the APG community, right? Really? Yeah. And she got to hear happy birthday without the lag. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Okay. Let's see. Let me go back here to the intro page and see what else we want to talk about. Uh, Of course, when Steph joins us, she'll be able to, there are a lot of things that Steph needs to talk to us about because she's been gone. She's been going around the world. Yeah. Um, I got hmm. one more thing I can talk about while you're doing that. So okay. Nick's rapidly counting down his uh, <sighs> falling from the skies here in a few months. I'm not that far behind him. I have uh, how many days do I have left? Oh, you have that app too. I have 547, and I had the wonderful opportunity of going down for my last simulator check uh, last month, and uh, I have one more time in the sim sometime this winter. And it was nice because it was my last check ride in the simulator 
and it was my co-pilot's first. <laughs> oh, you're joking. So, so we had the oh, extremes. Wow. So had a good time. Uh, he did very well. Oh. 1,753 days for me. Hmm. Catch up, Jeff. Seems like that was what it said last time I looked. <laughs> it did. Might be stuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. um, oh, speaking of uh, countdown calendars, uh, I saw this in Slack. Uh, let's see, who who put that in there? Um, pull up Slack. Yeah. Uh, I think I have it somewhere, too. Uh, Slack. And... Uh, Yes. His name is Miklos, or Miklos, M-I-K-L-O-S. He says, in case you're also eager, eagerly awaiting oh, yeah. Oshkosh 2019, I've set up a si simple little website a few years ago to count down to it. I always keep it open in a tab to cheer me up when I have a hard day. And right there, uh, Colonel Jeff is displaying the website, the EAA Air Venture Oshkosh 2019. I'm reading it in through the mirror because oh. it's backwards. 136 days, 13 hours, 33 minutes, 31 seconds. I'll put a link in the in the show notes to the actual calendar, which is actually pretty easy. It's oshkoshcountdown.com. And I know a lot of you in the chat room want to have this displayed on your computer or or your phone device or whatever. Again, that's oshkoshcountdown.com. So thank you, Miklos. Miklos? Sounds uh, Greek to me. Literally. Um, all right. And what else? Oh, you were talking about uh, a possible meetup in Washington, Nick, um, next yep. week on the 14th. Uh, we're not sure when we're going to record next week, uh, I but I have had a couple of folks in the Indianapolis area uh, contact me and say, hey, we need to have a meetup while you're here in Indianapolis, which will be Thursday the 14th next week. And so we're planning on doing something then and uh, we'll put something in slack to uh, kind of let you know where we're going to be and what time and that kind of thing but it will probably be something like five to eight o'clock ish and probably something near my hotel downtown and uh, i also said to the folks that are interested in the meetup if we happen to be recording that day maybe they can be the part of the live audience so we'll see how that works what time are you what time are you getting uh, into washington on thursday nick uh, I normally land at about uh, 3.30 and uh, half an hour to get through the airport and 50 minutes to get to the hotel. Mm. So that's 3.30, So I, I normally say I'd meet people around 5 o'clock or just after. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure that Thursday is going to work out for a, a recording of the show. Uh, maybe we could do Are you going to be able to do it on Friday, maybe? Uh, if it were in the morning, yeah. Oh, you only have one night? Yeah. Ah, okay. Well, we'll see. We'll let everybody know as soon as we know something. We haven't even had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Steph yet to see what her availability is. So we'll all let you, we'll just let you know and uh, keep attuned to the APG community calendar, airlinepilotguy.com slash calendar. And let's see. Okay. I think that's about all we have in the intro folder as far as, and until of course, Steph shows up. Um, with that, I think it might be a good time for us to talk about the uh, great gang of folks, the coffee bar club, the coffee fund cadre, whatever you want to call them. They're great people. And, uh, here we go. Johnny, how much more coffee? No, thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. 
Coffee Fun and the Java Jive by uh, Jeff Smith. And uh, that's your way to support the show financially. As I've said before, have you noticed all the commercials we have on this podcast? Oh, dozens. Yeah, none. Because we're supported by you and your generous donations. So if you want to help us out, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. And since the last episode, using the classic fund, we have Randolph Ackerman. Thank you, Randolph, for donating via the Coffee Fund Classic Method. And we have a new producer. Colin Colburn uh, is a a new producer on Patreon. He's a patron of the show via Patreon.com. And a new executive producer, Murph. That's it. Just Murph. So thank you, sir, for... Well, I'm, I'm assuming it's a sir. Could be a female name, too, I guess. Thank you... Whoever you are, Murph, for joining the Coffee Fun Cadre. You too, Colin. So, hey, if you want to join the gang, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did, and we will too. And the cappuccino he got me for lunch was wonderful. There we go. We actually spent the money on coffee. Coffee. Yeah. All right. And with that, it's time now for the news. Stand by for news. Okay, on the last show, we talked about the tragedy, the tragic crash of the Atlas flight uh, 3591. And uh, since the last show, they have recovered both the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder. And they are kind of uh, trying to glean as much information as they can from the cockpit voice recordings. And they're preparing a transcript as we speak. So uh, that is an update on that investigation. And kind of to go along with that, um, I don't know if you all got a chance to see this, but it's a very touching thing that uh, United Airlines um, has uh, or did um, the headline from the uh, Inc. Inc. dot com um, says it would have been easy to do little or even nothing. Instead, this and. It goes on to say, when a plane goes down, hearts in the airline world stop. Those who work in the business know that accidents can happen, and if they do, they're likely to involve fatality. A couple of weeks ago, an Atlas Air Boeing 767 flying on behalf of Amazon crashed just a few miles from the Houston airport. We all know that. Uh, The cause is still unknown. What's not received much attention is that along with the two pilots for Atlas, there was another death, uh, Sean Archuleta. A pilot for a regional carrier, Mesa Airlines, was jump-seating on that flight. He was simply getting a lift home. Archuleta had already been accepted to the big leagues. In a few days, he would have started at United Airlines. And this is how the airline reacted. As told to the Pilot Wife blog, the Pilot Wife Life blog, wow, it's hard to say, uh, by United Airlines Captain Gunn. 
And here's a quote from the blog. I operated flight 1009 to Bogota on Friday, March 1st. Prior to heading to the airport, I was contacted by the uh, Houston Intercontinental Chief Pilot and informed that his uh, Archuleta's widow would be on our flight returning to Colombia, where she currently lives. He asked if I could deliver a package to her from United. Of course, I agreed to help in any way that I could. United had her booked in first class and escorted her to the Polaris Club before the flight with plans for a personal escort to the airplane for departure. I coordinated to have her escorted to the plane and be in her seat about five minutes prior to general boarding. His wife, uh, Titania, speaks only Spanish, and although I speak some Spanish, it's definitely not conversational. I offered my condolences on behalf of United Airlines and all United pilots. The circumstances were difficult, especially considering that I had never met her. I delivered a stack of condolence cards from both United and Mesa Airlines, his current employer, as well as a set of United wings and epaulets. She was a very lovely lady, but she broke down when I gave her the wing, uh, the wings and epaulets. It was clearly very emotional for her to receive the wings. However, I could tell that she was very moved and it meant a great deal to her. Through the interpretation of the flight attendant, she told me that she would save these for her children to see and so that they would know that he was a United pilot. I simply stated, or I simply said that it would have been a pleasure and honor to fly with her husband. She thanked me and told me that United has been very good to her and that she was grateful for their support. It appears that United stepped up and treated her with respect and helped an already tragic situation. And he goes on to say, respect seems so rare these days. I can think of quite a few corporations that might not have reacted the way United did. Someone might have said, oh, he didn't actually work for us. Or someone else might have said, do we really want to be associated with a crash? Instead, someone at the airline decided the airline needed to react with thoughtfulness and decency, and they made it happen. Um, let's see, I'd also heard that at his first so-called indoctrination class at United on March 12th, which is coming up, the airline plans to leave an empty seat in Archuleta's honor. So um, he ends his um, blog post by saying, when there is death, no words help. However, as Archuleta's wife explained, gestures, gestures such as United's will be remembered. And, you know, we're a tight commit, uh, tight knit community uh, in the aviation world. And, you know, three people lost their lives here. Uh, this was just a story of, of one of them. Uh, and again, um, the loss of life is tragic, uh, both the Atlas pilots and the um, soon to be United pilot. But uh, this one, I think it was it was kind of bittersweet because, uh, you know, this many of you listening are are uh, aiming toward a career in this line of work and especially you know, trying to make it to the majors or as he said, the big leagues. And it looks like he finally achieved that and just shy of that happening, you know, this, this tragedy. So it's my understanding. It was his very last trip that he was commuting to for mm -hmm. Mesa. And uh, like the article says, he was scheduled to start at United this week, this yeah. next week and uh, good job there at United. Yeah. I'm glad they stepped up like that. That was very touching. And as you said, it would have been so easy for, for them just to say, yeah, let's don't even get involved in this. It's a little. Uh, you know, and Jeff talks about the tight-knit community. I know uh, in my new hire class, the class right before mine in my company, uh, one of the ladies in the class ahead of me, a great number of members of her family were on that Alaska Air 
MD-80 that went down off of the coast of the Pacific. And uh, the, the company basically moved everybody and her family to where they needed to be uh, for the to make arrangements and for the funerals and everything. So it it's, you know, it hits everybody hard. You know, when the Amazon jet went down, uh, the first thing I thought of was, I thought it was Miami Rick because he flies for that company, not Amazon, but for Atlas. And, uh, you know, I, I know it's not Rick because he's on the 7-4, but still, you know, when it's it's like a comrade in arms, you know, it doesn't matter whether you know them or not, it's still one of your peers. Yeah. It hurts. And uh, even if you don't know the person, even if it's not your airline, it still it still hurts. All right. Let's move on to, I was going to say something more pleasant, but um, <laughs> this is uh, an interesting incident. Uh, we, we still really haven't learned exactly what happened. Uh, but well, uh, I know the cause of this accident. Um, okay, what? Micah was greasing the runway. Micah. <laughs> Micah has something to do with this. Yeah, that's right. It happened in Maine. We, that should be investigated. Anyway, uh, this was a commute. That's air- why they're called maniacs. Uh-huh. A commute air flight 4933 operating as United Express from Newark, New Jersey to Presque Isle, Maine, was involved in an incident upon landing at approximately 1130 Eastern time on that day. I'm reading a press release. Uh, That aircraft, a 50-seat Embraer 145 with 28 passengers and three crew members on board, landed and slid to the right of the runway. Initial reports indicate one pilot as well as three passengers sustained minor injuries and are being attended to by emergency personnel. At this time, our focus is on the safety and well-being of all those involved, and we will be working with authorities to obtain more information with a follow-up statement to be issued as details emerge. Now, there are some photos included in this article, and the source of these photos that I'm seeing that we're looking at here in our notes. Uh, Crown of Maine. I'm not sure what. Is that a news organization, I wonder? Maybe Mike uh, can tell us. I'm so, I'm so glad uh, that no one was seriously hurt, but mm-hmm. I can I can already tell the cause of the accident. Yeah, what? Someone someone put the undercarriage inside one of the engines. <laughs> I was oh. just noticing that. It's like whoa. <laughs> yeah the the left main. Well, I'm thinking it's the left main landing gear. It could be the right. Yeah, uh, it's one of them <laughs> because they're all they're all gone. Uh, but this one is perched right in front of the left engine inlet on the back uh the tail of the airplane yeah, obviously you don't often see wheels up there do you <laughs> no that's yeah, a whole new de- term for wheels up yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> bam here where is it it's right there <laughs> and if dana were here he would be looking at these pictures and saying wow yeah yeah um so yeah look at the show notes if you haven't already seen some of these photos of this uh accident um and I checked before the show. I didn't see any updates on exactly what happened here. Apparently, they made an approach uh, to the. Uh, they were experiencing some um, hmm, adverse weather, some uh, a lot of snow and low visibilities. Uh, the ceiling wasn't too bad, though. I think it was like thirteen hundred feet, uh, and uh, they made an approach, uh, but apparently decided to go miss for whatever reason. It doesn't state. And then they held for a while, and then they decided to come back and try it again. On the second attempt, I believe, is when they uh, apparently landed very hard. And uh, I don't know if the the gear, the both the nose gear and main landing gear, uh, broke off during the hard landing or because of the fact that they went off the runway. I'm not sure. 
Uh, here's some of the weather observation of around the time of the event, uh, anywhere from one half mile to three quarter mile uh, light snow or snow and freezing fog. Um, temperature minus three, uh, dew point minus four. And um, let's see, the ceiling is. I thought 1300. I read that. Yeah, 1300. So, you know, it wasn't it's scattered a scattered at a. I mean, even for Cat 1, that's not. That's, no. That's, I mean, you could get to a, a non. Non-precision with that. And the winds weren't really bad no. at all. Five knots, four Five knots. knots. Yeah. So. The biggest hazard I see is the freezing snow and the freezing fog. Yeah. I don't know what happened there. Hopefully we'll, we'll oh, learn something. The glide path was out of service. Oh, okay. So they're, so doing they're a, having to do so a They're, they're doing a non-precision, approach. yeah. I haven't looked at the uh, airport diagram to see if they had any kind of uh, visual approach slope indicator or precision approach path indicator, both uh, visual aids to determine a glide slope, but I would imagine this airplane probably has, wouldn't you think they have some kind of a VNAV system? Maybe not on a 145. I, I don't know. know. I'm not familiar with the type, so I've never flown it. I know they can't do uh, twos and threes, but I think they can do VNAVs of some sort. I mean, even if you have the RNAV capability, you'll have like a an RNAV or vertical path yeah. um, indicator to kind of give you a, I call it like a virtual glide path. Um which would help for situational awareness, but, um, hmm. Call, call Dana in Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> Why would Dana know? I don't think Dana ever flew the 145. Oh, did, did he? No, I don't think so. Maybe he did. Do you know, Nick? No. Nope. Maybe he did. Oh, I was just noting that, I uh, okay. they didn't really need slides on this airplane, did they? They could just, <laughs> just walk yeah. out. <laughs> just kind of step out. Depends how deep the yeah. snow was. <laughs> well, the fireman days seem to be struggling. No. Nope. Yeah. They didn't need to use slides for sure. Well, we'll be uh, keeping our eyes and ears open for updates on that. And in the meantime, we're going to talk about Sean. No, Sean, uh, one of our listeners, sent this uh, news article in for us. Um, he says the TSA momentarily suspends their war against water and stops a man with a replica rocket launcher in his luggage. And so he has a link to this article from the uh, transportation. No, this is from a another uh news item holy cow yeah so this is what you know we have a picture of the item that he put in his checked baggage this is from the from foxnews.com um a florida man was caught at pennsylvania's lehigh valley international airport on monday trying to bring a military grade rocket propelled grenade launcher onto a flight in his checked luggage this is one way to get yourself launched out of the airport Brilliant. And uh, let's see. The uh, TSA said the uh, checked the bag after it triggered an alarm and discovered the unassembled parts of the weapon, barrel, trigger, sights, grenade. A press release reported, and the St. Augustine, Florida resident was detained by police for questioning. However, officers quickly found that the grenade launcher was not a functioning weapon but a replica. The man reportedly told officials he thought he could bring the item if it was in a checked bag. Uh, though the TSA website says realistic replicas of firearms may be permitted in checked bags, no weapons of military nature are permitted to be brought onto airplanes in either checked or carry-on luggage, a representative for TSA said in the press release. For those not watching the video, uh, if you know what an RPG uh rocket propelled grenade is that's exactly what it looks like it's a mock-up of an rpg which is an anti-tank weapon well the people in the uh 
watching the video can't see it either. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> Only we can see it on my oh, screen. <laughs> okay. It's an RPG-7. Yeah. It's a rocket propel grenade. What it is, it's crazy, is what it is. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, whoa. Do you hear that? Ooh. I hear special music. Yeah. Well, looks like joining us from her lakeside recording studio. Yeah, well, that's her. I, I don't. Okay. Um, let me get here to my intro. This is, I'm so smooth. Aren't you don't I? have this memorized. I should. At this point. I, no. I don't either. It's okay. Uh, Thank God HR is here. Doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Whew. Hey, I made it, finally. Yay. you guys. In Sorry one piece. Sorry for the delay. Hi, Steph. Welcome Hi, home. Hi, Nick. Hi, Jeff <laughs> and Jeff. Hi, Steph. <laughs> Jeff squared. Like an echo. Yeah. Uh, How have you been? Sorry. Sorry. for. Um, good. Tired. We, we missed you last week. I know. Yeah. How are the toes? Oh, toes are fine. Okay. No problem with toes. I still have one toe recovering from the New York City Marathon. Ouch. That was in November. Ooh. Yeah. And you've run how many more since? When they fall off, they take a really long time to grow back. Oh. Okay. They all survived intact uh, this round. Well, tell us about your experience over there in Tokyo. Yeah. So I, uh, I think everyone listening probably knows, unless this is your first time listening to the show, that I was in Tokyo last week. I ran the uh, Tokyo Marathon, which is one of the six world marathon majors. There's a series run by Abbott, and uh, that's one of them. This was number five for me. So I'm just lacking London at this point. And then I'll be a six-star finisher is what they they call it. Um, so yeah, went over on, oh my gosh, what day is it? What day was it? I think Tuesday. When, it well, Tuesday? I left Charlotte on Tuesday, but I spent the night in Los Angeles because oh, okay. that was just easier with flight times and breaking up the trip just a little bit and making sure I got enough sleep going into a marathon and also cost. It's a heck of a lot cheaper to fly to to Japan from the West Coast than it is from the East Coast, even after you factor in another flight across the country and a hotel stay. Go figure. Hmm. So anyway, um, did that, met up with, um, I basically left right after work on Tuesday. In fact, I was <laughs> pulled my patented pull up to the gate right as my uh, boarding group is being called walk right on the plane jumped out of the jeep and just let it, it just kept on oh, going didn't yeah, need exactly. gas had keys and you know <laughs> yeah. tickets this time <laughs> yeah i had my keys had my my wallet that was what i was missing the whole time before um yes had all of those things fortunately i uh, forgot to pick up my dry cleaning um, I kept getting these phone calls from a Charlotte number while I was in Tokyo that I wasn't answering I was like who is calling me and then it dawned on me on the way like on the way home I was like Oh, I never picked up my dry cleaning before I left. I bet that's who was calling me. Sure enough. But they anyway. thought it was so urgent for you to pick up your dry well, cleaning. Well, they know. I mean, I'm there pretty much every week, and they know uh, I come like on time. I'm sure they were uh, trying. You're being to. stalked by your dry cleaner. I know. I know. Um, <laughs> nice group of people. I'm, I'm sure it was just genuine. Sure. Concern, I'm sure. They all think they're nice people. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we think. We're I will nice say people. this about a uh, plug for my dry cleaners. If you live in the Charlotte area, you want to know who they are. They remember me. They remember me, me by name. They know, yeah, they're, they're, they're great. They're wonderful. Um, the little touches on service, right? Yeah. So anyway, got to LA, um, met up with everyone that I was traveling with in LA. I was actually, I thought I was going to be the last person to get there. Turns out I was earlier than I thought because I had a, a stopover in Las Vegas on my way to LA, um, got off the plane, walked over to the gate for my LA flight and they were boarding the previous LA flight. And I said, 
uh, do you have any more seats on this plane so I don't have to wait here for two hours? And they said, yeah, you get a choice. Middle, middle, or window. And I went, window for the win, all the way in the back. <laughs> That's fine. Did you have a first class on the next one? No, those were both um, just regular. Oh, okay. okay. So, so windows um, for the win. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Well, there was a, one of the middle seats was a, Exit. what is it called? Premium economy or whatever, or, uh, uh, or more uh, extra room and coach or something. Room, like yeah, extra, yeah. Extra leg room or something, but it was in the, I don't know, it was a bulkhead in the middle. I'm not really interested in that. Um, so yeah, so got in almost two hours earlier than I had planned to LA, which was nice. Um, meanwhile, my friend, uh, Karen, who I do all the running with missed her connection in Atlanta and had to go on a later flight. So she was an hour later than she planned getting in. Um, but just kind of what happens sometimes. So she got to LA finally, both of my brothers were there. My dad was there and we all boarded the same flight the next day to go to Tokyo. So we left at 1030 in the morning on Wednesday and arrived at 330 in the afternoon on Thursday. Uh, Cause that's, what is my computer doing? Sorry, I just decided to open some random PDF with a big blank screen all the way across my screen. Anyway. I did that from <laughs> you remote. Did that? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Thought you might want to see that. Yeah. yeah. No? But I did have a, a business class seat on the way to Tokyo, so that was very nice. Um, actually, my, my goal was to not sleep at all. I was trying to figure out how to beat jet lag um, leading into the marathon. Um, so I arrived. We ate dinner. Well, we got to the hotel, which was a couple train rides. And it was pouring rain, so then we had to make a stop in a store because none of us managed to bring umbrellas. And it was really raining pretty hard. So bought umbrellas, then walked the rest of the way to the hotel, got checked in, and then took my family over to their hotel, which was around the corner, checked them in, went out to dinner. And by that time, I was like, all right, time to go to sleep. So about 8 o'clock at night, went to sleep, got up the next morning on Friday at 7.30 in the morning and was just good to go right on Tokyo time. So, um trying to think what happened on friday then uh we ended up uh going over you have to go to the expo usually to pick up your packet of stuff for a race so you have a, a bib number and like t-shirts and you can do a lot of shopping usually um so we did that uh, fortunately it stopped raining kind of early in the day so it wasn't completely flooded like it was for the people who went on thursday because tokyo is hosting the olympics in 2020 so their main convention center is undergoing major renovations and construction and that's usually where they have the expo. So this year they had it outside in a bunch of tents. Uh oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's winter. I'm not and sure who's idea. Never real winter there. Yeah, yeah they do well, have. It's it was, cold. It was, it was cold. I mean, it was in the 40s uh, Fahrenheit. Oh, that is Celsius. You do the math. Um, five. But five. Five. Yeah, about five. Well, somewhere between five and ten the whole time I was there. I'd probably say Celsius wise. And. Uh, what after that so yeah we did that all day on friday um <laughs> something i did the last time i was in tokyo i took a my family and everyone out to the robot restaurant which is just a kind of cheesy touristy thing to do in tokyo it's not a restaurant there's kind of robots but it's just the weirdest show you'll ever see in your life it's very quirky um and i don't know it's a good time so we did that on friday night uh, got some sleep, met up actually with a group of runners that I know from a Facebook uh, page on Saturday morning, and we went for a run around the Imperial Gardens, which was beautiful. Saturday was a gorgeous day, um, sunny, um, fairly warm. Glad actually we didn't do the uh, the race that day because it might have been too hot. 
Um, and then we did the, the Tokyo Marathon had a friendship run, which is just kind of like a shakeout run. It's not done for time or anything. It was only like two and a half miles. So we actually just walked that, um, which was kind of interesting because a lot of people dressed up in fun costumes and things. They kind of encourage you to wear something representing your country because they have a lot of you know international visitors. And so, then, were you the Statue uh, of Liberty? Um, no, no. But I did uh, actually. Funny enough, the place where they had the friendship uh, run, there is a scale model, well, fairly large uh, Statue of Liberty, right there on the the water. Oh. Pictures of it. I'll have to post. Maybe they stole it from Vegas. I, I think it was actually a gift from the French. Those French oh, giving minute. statues of liberty to everybody. Yeah, apparently we thought. I don't know. We I have to go back and read the, the sign that I took a picture of. <laughs> ours is but bigger. Anyway. Yeah, ours is ours is bigger. Yeah, that's true. Um, and We'd like we to think. then the rest of the day was just kind of kind of relaxed. We just wanted to get off our feet, so had an amazing teppanyaki meal at actually at the hotel I was staying at. Some Kobe beef, and mm. uh, it was it was really good. I miss that. Really good. And went to bed early. Woke up on Sunday and it was raining, <laughs> cold, windy. I'm going, I think I ran a race like this once I'm gonna before. Say, it sounds like Boston. It sounds very familiar. It was slightly less rainy and slightly less windy and slightly warmer. Well, that yeah. must be In the reason why you had like a record-breaking time. Yeah, apparently those are my conditions. Yeah. So, um, but I, I trained. I've been working a little bit with a... Uh, a coach, a running coach, and we were working towards a goal of three hours and 45 minutes and stopped the clock at three hours, 45 minutes and 19 seconds. Beyond pleased with that. That was goal accomplished. Now, someone told me that a time that good can sometimes get you automatic entry into other marathons. Is that the case? I heard Pip say that, and um, that's not true for me (laughs) anyway. (laughs) Damn. Look at the source. Uh, Look at the source. He needs to read the rules and regulations at the London Marathon a little bit closer because actually I think they only apply to UK residents, and that time is still not fast enough to qualify me. But Uh, damn. But I am now within 10 minutes of a Boston qualifying time, so look out for for that to come hopefully in the future. Right there. Nice. Anyway, I got my my medal here. They showed off my bling. Nice. nice. Yeah. What is, is it a bottle opener? <laughs> uh, it could be. I think it probably wouldn't hold up to it very well, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I have a nice little, uh, you probably can't see, there's a map of the course on the back. Oh, nice, yeah. It's got the oh, date. cool, yeah. Interesting course, a lot of um, out and backs, so meaning you start out one direction, kind of make a hairpin turn and come back, and you actually do that three times on this course. Did but that on say the first made time, in China in the bottom corner there? <laughs> <laughs> Would not be surprised. Uh, yeah, no. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it was, it was that was really cool because um, it gave us a chance, at least on the first out and back, to pass all the elite athletes going in the other direction. You know, they were all the way past oh, the halfway yeah. point at that time, and I wasn't anywhere near that. Um, but it was fun to see because, as a you know, middle back of the pack runner, you never get to see the elite athletes go by. It was, it was neat. Did you like stick your leg out, try to trip them? <laughs> um, no, but I'll remember that. For would that be time, against though. the rules? That would be very much against the rules. Ah, okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah, how about whose rules? <laughs> oh, no rules. The International Just Running uh, Foundation. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, or only if they catch yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, <laughs> it, would, it wouldn't you... help me anyway. I still wouldn't be able to catch them because they were at least 12 kilometers ahead of me at that point. Mm. Wow. Yeah. 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 And we started only five minutes apart. Like the gun went off. It took me five minutes and 24 seconds to get to the start line. So they only started that far ahead of me. I'm at kilometer 13. They're at 25. 
Mm. Wow. My chances. Yeah. It's, it's crazy fast. So, mm. um, yeah. And then I had another day and a half just to do some sightseeing around. Uh, Monday was rainy again. Um, but we, we made the best of it. We did some shopping for kitchenware, which I'll get, don't, not going to go into all the details on that, but there's a story behind that and did the, <laughs> the Tokyo sky tree, uh, which was interesting, even in the clouds. And, um, the next day when it was sunny again, we did the observatory at the metropolitan government building. So I had a nice view of the city that day nice. and they flew home and my strategy for combating Jet lag on the way back did not work nearly as well as it did on the way there. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, coming back for me was always the hard part. I thought I had it figured out. I was like, all right, I'm going to sleep on the first flight, and then I'm going to stay awake for the transcontinental stuff. That's two flights. And then when I get home, it'll just be time to go to bed again. Nope. Yeah. Wide awake. <laughs> Wide awake all night long. So oh, no. I uh, kind of just struggled through work yesterday, and I've, I still have stuff to catch up on. You know, if I had realized it was going to be that difficult for me to fall asleep, I would have, but I only had about five hours to sleep. Oh, not enough time. Not enough time for Ambien. I had something else I could have taken, but by the time I realized I needed to take that too, it was, it was too late. Uh, again. So, oh, well. Hey, well, did you, did you see anybody from the APG community over there? You know, I did. I did. Uh, good segue there. Um, what night was that? I don't even remember. It was, that was. Monday night. Yes. Monday night after the uh, marathon. Um, some of you might remember Timo who listens. Um, he's actually German, but lives in Tokyo working on his PhD there in. Oh, uh, I'm probably going to get the, the actual field wrong, but basically it's in aerospace and aviation engineering type stuff. Uh, really cool, interesting stuff that he does. I can't remember if he mentions it in the audio that I recorded or not, but he suggested a place for us to meet up and have a couple of beers and um, chat for a little while. So that was really great. And I think we have some audio. We do. Let's play it right now. Hey, Captain Jeff, this is Dr. Steph on location live here in Tokyo, Japan, and we are doing a quick uh, meetup here with Timo. And I'm going to turn it over to him so he can tell us a little bit about who he is and why he's here and where we are today. So take it away, Timo. Konbama, good night and guten Abend, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Captain Dana and the entire APG crew. Yeah, we're here at the um, Far East Brewing Company and we had some nice craft beer, some um, Japanese food and I think next on we're going to um, get some sushi. And I think this is the first Japanese APG meetup, if I'm think, correct, right? I think you are correct. I don't yes. think there has been a, a Japan meetup before this. So. I don't think so either. And, um, well, actually, we're the last people around. The stores are already closing down. But I think um, we've been the best customers today. Well, there's no... Yep, yes. definitely, That's definitely. Right. And um, maybe a round of applause, everybody. Listen to all those people at the Japanese yeah, meetup here exactly, in Tokyo. Exactly. Never mind that half of them are my family. It's okay. It's okay. That, that, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. So you have a huge community in, in Japan too, obviously. No, but I, I can just invite everybody of you. If you ever come to Japan, then we can go here or any other place. You'd be my guest. Looking forward to another nice episode. Yeah. So I should mention this is we are at the Far Yeast yes. Brewing Company, and it has been lovely. We've had a couple of nice IPAs and other. Um, interesting local beers and 
Bao? Did I say that right? Uh, yep. Yes, Bao. Bao, exactly. yes. Um, so, so good food to, to go along with it. And, and even better company, as always. It's, it's been amazing. Exactly. Good. And with that, I would say have a very nice episode. And as I always say, um, sayonara, tschüss, and bye-bye. Your Timo. And I'll go with cheers, y'all. Back to you in the studio, Jeff. Take Timo. Tschüss. I love it. Just, a Japanese meetup where it's a German accent and an American accent. Okay. His Japanese was fantastic, though. It made oh, yeah, living there would have to be. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. So I think he said he's been there six years now. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's been a while. Hey, Timo, I know you heard me say before, uh, thanking you for the uh, wonderful beer and uh, matcha green tea. Oh, the matcha green tea Kit Kats. Kit Kats. Oh, they're yes. so good. And you know what? We actually had some of those in, uh, in Miami. Um, Chad. Mm brought some i guess he knows of a of an asian place there in the miami area and uh captain nick and dana and liz got to uh try the uh, kit kat the green tea matcha kit kats i have i came home with a backpack full of a variety of flavors of kit kats because that's a thing in japan For so us, have, like, thank you. Steph. Well, I have I, some of them were, yeah. Thanks, Steph. I, I might have some left still. I have a <laughs> sweet potato, uh, purple sweet potato Kit yep. Kat. Um, I don't <laughs> even remember what else. Just, just some crazy stuff. Some stuff that I can't even pronounce. Do you have my ho 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 hops beer stuff? Stuff really? Your Hoppy Holidays. That's it. Hoppy Holidays. I knew it was <laughs> <Close>. an age. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I still have two of those. Yes. Did you bring back any of the, uh, they have, uh, it looks like bags of potato chips, but it's, it's shrimp. Uh, no, I did not oh, okay. bring back They're any big of that. into that too. Like dried yeah. shrimp? Or yeah, something? like a dried shrimp, shrimp mm-hmm. kind of chip. The last time I was in Japan, I had, um, what were they called? Crispy octopus crackers. Oh yeah. Yum. They were really good. They are. That sounds good. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, so anyway, I great to hear uh, from me. Uh, Timo and um, and and it's glad it's good to hear that we have uh, some APG community members over there in uh, Japan. Mm-hmm. And it it really was a wonderful meetup. And my thanks again to uh, Timo for all of that and suggesting the location and um, yeah, having a flexible schedule to accommodate our crazy schedule. Excellent. And apparently, um, there were some some kids there that uh, are are quite fond of me. Let's see. Nick, Man. what have you done? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I could, I could we recognize won't, won't the Japanese the end of that accent. one for a while. Oh, yeah. That's wow. going to be on every episode at least <laughs> once for the next year. <laughs> at least. Oh, man. So. But we all know they're talking about the handsome Captain Jeff. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He's Captain Jeff, too. <laughs> hey, so, um, so you're really excited about being back and back to work then, huh? I love work. <laughs> no sarcasm. One, one small you know what? feeling. I don't know. I should really keep track of this, but I feel like in a regular week, I get a certain number of like to-do tasks, messages from patients, medications that want re- people want refilled in my in-basket on a daily basis. I was gone a week, not even a full, well, yeah, five days from, no, four days from work, really. Th- Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Monday. And I came back to, no joke, oh, well over 250 tasks to do between paperwork and things to sign off on, messages in my in basket, people just, to call back. They just wanted to fe- like, make you feel wanted. Like, what is going on? And it wasn't just like simple stuff that I could just sign off on most of it. It was like 
things I had to sit and make phone calls for and mm. happy to do that stuff. But it just seemed to be an abnormal volume of stuff for the amount of time I was gone. I hear an aviation job calling. <laughs> Don't <laughs> tempt me too much. <laughs> oh, my doctor quit because of the computer work. You know, I'll say this. I know everyone here uh, is on Twitter, but a new Twitter um, account just started on Monday, I think. And it's a parody of the uh, largest electronic medical records company um, in the U.S. I won't name names, but if you're in healthcare, you have a good idea of who that is. Um, but basically, <laughs> it's, it's just on point, um, nailing all of the things that people love to hate about electronic medical records. It's quickly become my new favorite thing to to follow on Twitter. And in like <laughs> two days, they have 4,000 followers, <laughs> which wow. just tells you how well they tap into the um, love. The for, love. For EMRs. The love. Yeah. Where is anyway. the love? All right. Well, we're glad that you're back with us here in the U.S., Steph. Yes. And I am as back well. on the show. And uh, as I said, uh, we had a great time in Miami, but we did miss your presence. Yes. I'm, I'm sad I missed out on the Miami meetup. So the uh, uh, Tokyo Marathon was definitely set in stone those dates long before that came to be. But yeah, I'm sad I couldn't be there with you all. It, was, it wasn't, from what I understand, it wasn't near as painful as the last Miami meetup. <laughs> Probably no, good that you for were all at. involved. <laughs> Yeah. But I, yeah, I wasn't quite as lubricated <laughs> as that one. Um, what was that? 2016? Was that right? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 Three, yeah. three years ago. Three long have, years ago. You didn't have ago. Al there to continually refill yeah, your glass. Yeah, thank goodness. The, the auto glass filler upper, <laughs> Captain Al. Oh, no kidding. Oh. <laughs> Okay, uh, let's move on to the last item in the news folder, uh, unless there's anything else to add, Steph? No, that seemed like a lot. Yeah. Um, if I missed something, no. I probably did, but... Okay, if you funny. think of it, let us know, and then we'll, nah, we'll it's not important. fit that in. Okay, uh, this was a news item that uh, the good-looking, handsome Captain Jeff uh, added, and it was an event that happened um, on March 5th. Wait, I don't understand this. It says, the news item says March 4th, 2019. Updated March 4th, 2019. And, and then it March, starts, a Qantas flight that from before. Adelaide to Canberra <laughs> was on March 5th, forced to divert. They don't even, they can't even figure out the darn international date line well, over there. Yeah, really? It's really confusing. Hmm. Maybe that's the, maybe that's what happened. Maybe here. it didn't happen. Yet. Well, uh, maybe this, the, uh, well, maybe the website the changed Times. the date on you. Yeah. The Epic Times probably was still on the 4th when this happened on the 5th. It very well may have. Okay. I have a daughter like that. Okay. What does that mean? She was born in Japan. So when I told my parents when she was born, my uh, mother could never figure out what, because I go, mom, you have a new granddaughter. She's born tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> She's from the future. Stuff. My She's mom could future. never figure out when her birthday actually was. It was a riot. That's funny. Anyway, a Qantas flight from Adelaide to Canberra was on March 4th, 5th forced to divert and make an emergency landing in Melbourne follow, following Melbourne, following a mid-air incident reportedly caused by pressurization issues. I do I, did I read the uh, headline on this? No, I didn't. So I think I need to read this. Qantas horror flight. <gasps> Plum ah! Plunges 15,000 feet before emergency landing in Melbourne. Uh, so 
Flight 706 made it to Melbourne safely just after 8 a.m. Australian Eastern Time after making an emergency diversion due to a loud bang heard coming from the rear of the plane, which caused the aircraft to rapidly plunge 15,000 feet. Around an hour after takeoff, passengers were left terrified after the aircraft descended from 25,000 feet to 15,000 feet, 25 minus 15, 10,000 feet in total, in five minutes. A whopping 2,000 feet per minute. Ah! Roller coasters go faster wait a, than wait a that. Minute. I can do that in like <laughs> yeah, a, pretty much a normal rate of descent. <laughs> pretty much. Jeep can do that. <laughs> My Jeep yeah. can do that. <laughs> yeah. Actually, yeah. My Jeep was in the air. It's, it's a brick. Uh, yeah, so I don't know why it was so horrifying, except that the frightened passengers were forced to wear oxygen. Put, the, put your mask on. Put your mask on. They were forced to at uh, gunpoint <laughs> to uh, wear those oxygen masks during the descent, but allowed to remove the masks after the aircraft reached a safer altitude. Anyway, it was a Boeing 737 and what, the again? pardon. What, yeah, again. again? Yeah, again, I guess they're having trouble with the pressurization system or something. But I've they, never had a problem. The thing, the pack was one of the packs was um, uh, was not working, and they knew that they left with it like that. And in the article, they talk about that they had to stop their climb at twenty five thousand feet or flight level two five zero. No, they had planned to cruise at flight level two five zero because they only they were one, operating with one pack. pack. So that's normal. We do that on occasion. And then I guess the operating pack decided to stop working. And then they had to make a descent from 25,000 to 15 and then ultimately 10,000. And uh, yeah. So um, what? What are you laughing at? I'm just at? reading in one of the paragraphs. The guy slept through it all. Yes. <laughs> Apparently the <laughs> oh, loud bang was. terrifying? That someone it was so terrifying. Guy slept through the whole thing. Yeah. Mm. He didn't hear the loud bang. So, let's see. There were a few people around me who were stressed and a baby screaming. A baby was screaming. That they never do that, do they? All of my flights. Yeah, well, especially right. yeah, with That's the pressurization. Stunning. Where was that lady with the 200 sets of earplugs? <laughs> did you guys hear about that one? Pass out no. to everyone. Don't lady got on the airplane with a baby. She had 200 sets of earplugs. Oh, I did, I did hear about yes. that. Yeah. <laughs> And like, I'm sorry in never advance. made a peep the whole flight. <laughs> <laughs> of course. That's great. Very considerate of her. Anyway, so another uh, great piece of journalism. Oh, yes. And the, the, you have to know that the picture of the aircraft that they showed on the headline is an A380. Yeah, well, of course. N nearly. It's a 747. But um, is the. It? Uh, okay, let me, pick, let me click on it and see what we have here. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, it is oh, a, yeah, it is a it 380. Is a I just, yeah. Or 7.4. It's 7.4. Yeah, that's right. Look, at, it doesn't uh, have that many wheels. Yeah, it doesn't have enough wheels. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, a 737 is about the size of one of those engines, yeah? Uh, the fuselages, <laughs> yes. Same size as the engine. Oh, actually, those are RB211, so it's uh, a lot bigger. The 7.3 is bigger. Hmm. Uh, okay. It's well. A, it's a 380 engine. The 777 engine, the fuselage is the same size as the uh, 777 engine. You aviation nerds. Leave it alone. G90. Right? It's just dreadful though, isn't it? It yeah. is. But, you know, do we expect anything more or less? No. No, it's becoming a source of great amusement. It us. is. <laughs> Keep it up out there, you expert aviation journalists, you. Yeah. Don't ask anyone who knows, for heaven's sake. No, we'll that spoil would be all our fun. too much trouble. <laughs> <laughs> really? 
All right. Well, with that, I think now it is time for us to move on to your great feedback. Captain, incoming message. All right. Let's start off with uh, item number one from Sean. The uh, FAA is probing Southwest Airlines over baggage weight discrepancies. This is, uh, Sean says, I'm not sure what to make of this. 1,000 extra pounds isn't a huge amount of weight for a 737-800. Maximum takeoff weight, 175,000 pounds. So not concerning, but with the FAA investigating things, obviously there's something unusual going on. And this article is from... Let me see here. I didn't write that down. Looks like uh, from oh, Wall we don't Street know. Journal. Yeah. Wall uh, Street. Oh, yeah, it is. I did write it down. Wall Street Journal by Andy Pastor. Uh, federal air safety regulators are investigating Southwest Airlines company for widespread miscalculation of the total weight of check bags loaded onto each of its flights, according to government officials and internal agency documents. The Federal Aviation Administration's year-long civil probe the document show found systemic and significant mistakes with employee calculations and luggage loading practices resulting in potential discrepancies when pilots compute takeoff weights. The findings have sparked concerns among some federal safety investigators. Now I put that a bold because uh, maybe Southwest airlines, maybe their pilots actually do compute takeoff weights, but I know at Jeff's airline and my airline, uh, there's like a separate department that uh, load yeah. planning that does all the calculating for takeoff weights and everything else. I wonder. Yeah, I I don't know how Southwest does it. Yeah, I know there are some regional airlines and some international airlines that the pilots do their takeoff weight calculations. I think Nick, you do uh, your own takeoff weight calculations, right? No, we don't do the oh. weights, uh, but we do do the uh, performance calculations. Did you say do 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 do? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we do, do, do. Um, and funnily enough, our software that uh, is standard Airbus software has the load sheet capabilities. And the rumor is it'll be brought in at some point. But uh, no, we currently use an independent company that works that out. Okay. So, yeah, maybe Southwest actually does that. Um, well, in a few cases, the FAA found that the load was more than 1,000 pounds in excess of what airline paperwork indicated. Southwest has said its system carries minimal risk for passengers. Um, FAA inspectors and outside safety experts agree the greatest uh, risks stem from potentially incorrect pilot responses to an engine emergency based on an inaccurate recording of the weight distribution between the plane's front and rear cargo bays. And it goes on to give us some more information in the article, which we'll have in the show notes. Um, It goes on to say, unlike other large U.S. airlines, Southwest doesn't rely on computerized scanners to count bags. As they are piled into the bellies of aircraft, instead, the carrier has the ground crew count bags. Either way, airlines use average bag weights to calculate the overall weight of checked luggage. In the course of the inquiry, Southwest told the FAA uh, to, or its system, presents less than minor risk to passengers. Uh, but some FAA inspectors expressed concerns that in extreme circumstances, uh, did I already read that? No. Nope. I feel like I've read no. that. Okay. Uh, in extreme circumstances, such as an engine failure at takeoff, a plane could experience hand- handling difficulties uh, tied to weight discrepancies. 
The pilot set takeoff speed and thrust depending on total aircraft weight and how it is distributed, including passengers, fuel, and contents of cargo holds. And uh, looks like now, I guess because the FAA is breathing down their neck, uh, they decided that they were going to implement procedural changes and internal reporting safeguards. And they're also going to start embracing technology. By year end, the spokesperson said the carrier plans to institute computerized scanning of all individual bags on the tarmac just before they're loaded into the cargo holds of its more than 700 Boeing 737 jets. So I, I don't – do you all do that now with the we scanners? We have scanners, yeah. Yeah, we do too. I mean, 1,000 pounds is only five bags. Yeah. Five or six bags. So that's – I mean, right. that's – if you – It'd be easy to distract somebody. Now, a thousand pounds on a seven three—that's, it's like five percent of the overall weight of the airplane at most. Not even that. No, not even and that. It's a half a percent. But I mean, it's like one knot of airspeed difference between takeoff v one and rotate <laughs> or approach speed. It's yeah. one knot. So you cut it with a micro, cut it with a measure with a micrometer, cut it with a chainsaw kind of thing. So yeah. Um, I, 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 they must uh, have a computer record of the bags, though, because people check them in and they. Well, have they the check them in because they show the bag tags on them, but they don't yeah. have the number. How the hell? It must be such a simple job just to get the computer to add up the number of bags. Yeah, but Nick, how many actually make it on the airplane? Well, if you've checked it in and it's going, oh, well, yeah. In- if that's a big if. I mean, how many times well, you show up y- and the bag's not there? Yeah, I know, but when you check in, you put a bag tag on it, and it's scanned into the aircraft, the computer system. Yeah, but it's not every airline do that. No, Southwest they count the number of bags as they're loaded. Now they're scanned at the mm-hmm. ticket counter, but like at my airline, oh. at Jeff's Airlines, at Ajax and Acme, there's a scanner on the on the belt that's feeding the cargo bay that's scanning the bags as they go in. Sure, and then also but I mean, as a passenger, they- it gives you a very nice. Uh, Text message when your bag arrives on the carousel. Ah, that's yes. the RFI, so the RFID have, stuff. All I'm getting at is if they're scanned at the ticket counter and you count the bags there, would you just tell the crew this this number of bags? I don't understand the problem. If there, if some people don't take the bags and go away with them and they don't end up in the airplane, then you're lighter, which is safer. That's true. But I guess they're not doing that. <laughs> that would be the smart thing to do, but. Yeah. And or automatically add five percent or ten percent to the count to err on the safe side because people are making that kind of gross error. Yeah, yeah. honestly, I think that this is making a lot of it's making um, a mountain out of a molehill. Yeah, I really do think so. It's not but, a you significant know, amount of weight. But Southwest and other airlines have been involved in um, you know some contract negotiations, contract negotiations, mm-hmm. and other things going on. So perhaps this. This probe is uh, tied to the fact that they're, I mean, they're just getting more more attention. Yeah, uh, Southwest Maintenance has been in contract negotiations for several years now. Mm-hmm. And the American guys, I think, were in the same boat. They've been in contract negotiations for, I think, about a year. Yeah. And their pilots just opened up early this January, and the flight attendants go next year at American. So, it's hmm. every airline's different, but it can have an impact. Yeah. All right. Well, we figured out what you need to do. You need to get those scanners functioning or have the people at the front desk call the pilots and tell them how many bags to expect. Is that what you you came up with, uh, Nick? Well, 
on our aircraft, not only the bag scanned so we know uh, which individual baggage container every bag is, we actually know whether it's the top, middle, or bottom. So that if we have to pull a bag um, because a passenger has failed to show up at the gate, we know exactly which container to pull out and where in the container to look. And that's just a money-saving device. It's not because we're trying to be clever. It's just because that cuts down the amount of time to find a bag, get it off the airplane so we can get going too sweet. And overall, that just saves money, having that kind of sophisticated equipment. Ah, uh, the advantages of a wide body with bins. <laughs> and seven three, they're seven three in the Mad Dog that Jeff and I fly. They're freeloaded. And, the, no and the kind of flying that you're doing, obviously, right, you have to have a freeloaders. You have to, yeah, yeah, freeloaders. You have to have a much more. <laughs> uh, only that was the case. You have to have <laughs> a much more sophisticated system, I think, especially when you're doing the long haul international yeah. stuff. You know, the I've had to pull bins, and you know which bin is which bag is in, and where it is in the bin. I've had to do that when I was flying the seven six, and it's it's a lot faster finding a bag on a seven six three hundred or a three thirty than it is on a seven three because. On the seven three, they have no idea where it is, except whether it's in the forward or the aft. Yeah. Oh dear. Okay. Oh, well. Okay. Well, that's enough of that one. Um, two. Alexander says, uh, "This is Alexander Graham Ball. I'm a. I, I added the middle name. Yeah, he's been on before. Like yeah, I'm a twenty year old twenty year old Australian, and I recently, about one and a half months ago." Discovered your amazing podcast one fine evening at work, and I must say that since then I have contracted a serious case of APG syndrome. With that in mind, I thought that after listening to almost 100 episodes and multi multiple times more bits of feedback, it was about time for me to finally send some in myself. This is for two reasons. The first reason is just to say a quick thank you to all of you. The past month has been quite hectic in my life with a major surgery, work problems, and more. And while I just found you guys, your podcast played a major role in helping me through my ongoing recovery. And for that, I can't thank you all enough. I greatly appreciate what you guys do, and I'm looking forward to seeing where the podcast goes over what is hopefully many years to come. He must have been really hurting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously, he's still on the uh, anesthesia right now. A hundred podcasts in 45 days. Uh, oh, that's wow. crazy. Yeah. yeah. Some of those hospital drugs are pretty good. I know. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give it's me some Jeff, of those It's drugs. Jeff's voice. Okay. The second reason for this uh, question is a question, which is a bit personal on my end, but I've been dying to ask the question since I discovered you, and now is better than ever. So, what kind of underwear do you all... No, that's not what he wrote here. Let me see. I skipped a long... <laughs> not that kind of personal. <laughs> that, that's, that's too personal. Sorry. That's, that's personal on your end. Okay. Yeah. On, our, we need on the all underwear of our photographer. <laughs> we need the underwear photographer. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So, for a bit of context, as stated above, I'm 20 years old. I'm currently holding my private pilot's license, cross-country endorsement, and passenger endorsement, and I plan to go for my commercial pilot's license when money permits with the hopes of becoming a fully licensed pilot for a major international airline in the future. However, I also suffer from high-functioning autism, or under the new diagnostic criteria, I am borderline between level 1 and level 2 ASD, with multiple psychologists putting me on different levels. 
If any of you know the show, think of me as Dr. Sean Murphy from The Good Doctor. But instead of having a professional interest in the medical industry, I instead have a, a, a professional interest in the aviation industry, more specifically piloting, and understand that, like Sean, I function a lot better when doing something I have a genuine interest in, like flying. So, my question to you all is, what are your professional and personal, if you're okay with disclosing them, I won't get offended, whatever you all say, uh, well, don't count your before they hatch, hatch yeah, yeah. Um, opinions on having a person with high functioning autism working as a pilot on an airline, both from the perspective of a captain with Captain Jeff, Nick and Dana and the other Captain Jeff, and from the opinion of a medical professional with uh, Dr. Steph, as well as get an understanding of the rules and regulations regarding someone with autism being a pilot. Like I said earlier, I won't get offended no matter what you guys say. So if you personally believe that someone with autism has no place as a commercial pilot for an airline, feel free to say that. Anyway, I feel as if this feedback is getting a bit too long. No. So I will finish it by saying thank you very much again for all your hard work in life with the podcast and for your indirect help in my recovery from surgery. And until next time, I'm wishing you all clear skies, strong tailwinds, and all the rest. Cheers. And again, that's Alexander Ball. And I don't know. Um, who would who would like to start? I I on my hats off to him the fact that he's even contemplating this because he's gonna have to go through the medical guys to get an answer because I don't think any of us can give him a good answer on um, well, I can tell you what the uh guide for AMEs says. I know that much. Oh, okay. Go ahead, Steph. So maybe we'll start with that and then you can give uh, more of the you know working environment perspectives. Um basically at the AME guide does not, uh, it's not discussed, or they don't discuss autism spectrum disorders or Asperger's syndrome, which is the general, generally the higher functioning uh, end of autism spectrum disorder. I think all that classification has changed a little bit yeah, recently, which he's alluding to. Um, but basically, it comes down to the AME to uh, make those determinations. Um, typically, it will be in conjunction with um, recommendations from that individuals, psychiatrists, psychologists, whoever they're seeing, or their primary medical doctors, um, basically looking for stability, looking for, um, I know there's been instances where there has been requests for cognitive testing, um, just to make sure that, um, basically like IQ testing, just to see what intelligence level someone's functioning on, but generally these folks possess higher intelligence levels than average. Um, and then often they're issued their medicals with um, a special issuance. So if everything is determined to be um, in order and stable and uh, the AME is comfortable with how that individual uh, basically processes information and can uh, make decisions and react to what's going on around them. So, so it is possible, but I'm sure it's also not possible to get, or it's possible that it would be um, denied. It just depends on the individual. So as the good looking Captain Jeff was saying, it's it's probably important to Yes. <laughs> I, I'm pointing at the one I'm pointing at. Uh, thank you. Th thank you, dear. Very, very <laughs> politically correct. You know, having a daughter with special needs, uh, myself, we've always told her that she can go as far as she can fight to go. Mm -hmm. And it's so my advice is to go as far as you can fight to go. 
as long as you're willing to fight for it, fight for it. Go as well, far as you can get price. and get as far as you can get. Um, yep. The only thing holding you back is you. Mm-hmm. Make them defeat you. If that's, you know, I told my daughter, you know, she just, it, it's not that she can't do it. She just has to work harder to get there. So, yeah. um, you know, my hat's off to him to go on to, you know, with the condition he has, there's going to be some hurdles to climb. I mean, I've flown with guys who have all kinds of different problems from, you know, I've flown with a guy with an artificial leg, flew with a guy with one eye. So it's, um, it's possible. I just, it's up to their medical people probably. And he's got to fight that battle with them. And he's flown, uh, well, you've never flown with me, but if you had, you've flown with a guy that doesn't have any personality. (laughs) So I've flown with him and it's not you. So these, I would say, I would say this, you know, uh, a lot to uh, Jeff's point just now that um, I think our self-imposed limitations often end up being greater than our physical and cognitive, actual physical and cognitive limitations. So um, if it's your passion, if it's your dream, go for it. And I would jump in on that. You already, you said you already have your private certificate, correct? Yes. Um, So at least have already crossed that hurdle and presumably have a class three medical certificate so i would well, get you know, back he said to, he's from australia so i don't, I don't know, know he's oh, 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 actually, sorry. it's a little that different be, that yeah, i was gonna I say i don't so i don't he, he's he's australian and i'm assuming yep. he's in australia yeah uh so i don't know you know the guidelines that you mentioned regarding the ame guidelines they may be different might be different yeah 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 as always the standard disclaimer is this only applies to the country in which i'm currently sitting um but i think it's it's never a bad idea to be open, honest, and ahead of the curve there. So get in and get those, um, all those I's dotted and T's crossed early with the medical personnel. Yeah. Nick? From where, from where I sit, um, to have a high intelligence is one of the few things you don't really need to be an airline pilot. Yeah, that can be <laughs> your detriment. <laughs> I, yeah, I would, I would this crowd. <laughs> I know actually. plenty of airline pilots. Without HR, we'd be in trouble. Exactly right. Who haven't achieved that status. Huh? What is he saying? I noticed amongst the, <laughs> the level one autism, and this of course is a generalized list of symptoms. There are a number of these, which would be any one of which would be a, a big hurdle to cross such as um, difficulty with social interaction, such as talking to a person, um, obvious signs of communication difficulty, trouble adapting to changes in routine or behavior, difficulty planning or organizing, and that's for level one. And um, we're talking something that's a little worse than that. So uh, I'm not a great one for putting people in boxes. That is a box. Uh, I don't think that um, you should, definitely uh, concern yourself about which box you're in. You just need to go and be assessed to see whether uh, whatever affects you is is sufficiently um, inhibiting to prevent you from doing those things because those ones I highlighted are very important in our job, uh, particularly the communicating, uh, particularly the uh, um, being able to cope with changes in routine, which uh, is very frequent in our job and planning and organizing, which are, are vital. So um, if those are problems, if areas you have problems, either you could be taught to overcome that, uh, or perhaps they're not areas which you need to concern yourself because perhaps the definition doesn't really match the way you uh, interact. Well stated. I hope that helps. Um, 
Yeah. Alexander. I mean, I, Alexander, I mean, uh, I'm all for it. Go for it. I mean, you've got your private and work with the uh, medical folks and go as far as you can. And, you know, if you, if you really want to fly that bad, uh, you know, you're in our thoughts about making it. Let us know how it goes. Absolutely. Great. All right. Let's move on then. Glaucus. He writes in and says, hope you are all well, enjoying the northern winter. We are struggling with the heat in the Australian summer, reaching temperatures. Yeah, it, it's cooking over there. No yeah, kidding. Really yeah, they don't need to light the barbecues. They just put a tin plate out in the sun. No kidding. Yeah, temperatures of up to 47 degrees Celsius, which is 116 Fahrenheit. Ouch. That's hot. That's Phoenix. Yeah. Mm. He says, I miss those cold mornings. <laughs> Not for long. <laughs> See the enclosed, a rare video where an ATC blunder almost caused a disaster. This took place in Brazil at the Fernando de Noronha airport. And he says, Cheater. F-E-N. Good luck in saying the second part of the name. I thought I pretty, I, didn't <laughs> I did, nail that? did great. Yeah, let me, uh, in, in case you didn't hear me. Fernando de Noronha. There you go. I think I nailed it, Glaucus. Oh, my Jeff, goodness. N- next time I'll get those eight-year-olds at the school to say it for you. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> okay. Anyway, apparently ATC gave clearance to the Azul airplane. Did I say that right? Azul? Mm-hmm. Uh, plane to taxi, but forgot the fact that landing clearance was given to a GOL goal. Goal. 737. You can clearly hear the moment the 737 pilot hit the toga switch. Credit to the goal pilot for his attention, quick reaction, and observance of the training received. Why? Does that toga switch make a big clang? Apparently it does. Yeah, so it, let's, it screams on the radio. Go around. Go I want around. To, I want, so we're going to listen very closely here because I'm going to play the, play the video, the audio to the video anyway. Let's hear what we can hear. It does make noise. So we'll have a link to that video in the show notes so you can experience it. But uh, basically it showed the um, one airplane on the runway taxiing and the other airplane coming in for landing. And he says, you might need to beep what the person on the ground said. Otherwise, you might offend any Brazilian speaking listeners who don't like swear words. Well, I didn't hear any swear words myself. Of course, I don't understand don't Portugal, Portuguese. <laughs> Portuguese, yes. <laughs> but uh, no, I don't have a Brazilian either. I'm not sure. I mean, how would I censor that? I'm, I don't know which of the words was <laughs> really, a swear yeah. word. So you're just going to have to, if you're Brazilian, if you just mute it. <laughs> yeah. If you speak Portuguese, just take our apologies. Yeah. Sorry for the offensive language and in that video. We'll blame Glaucus for that. Yeah. We'll give you his yeah. email address. <laughs> so I'm, I don't know about you guys, but when I take the runway, I'm looking both ways. Yeah. I mean, clear right. I'm looking clear at the left. Because t- this happened to me in Caracas where they cleared us onto the runway to line up and wait. And in those days, we didn't turn the transponder on until we took the runway. And captains, I click it on, and the first thing I see is a guy in about a mile final on the TCAS. I look out, and he's right there. 
And I yell at the captain to stop, but we're already across the hold line. And the captain gets on the radio and goes, hey, Tower, confirm, line up, wait. And go, Royer, line up and wait. <laughs> and he just goes, I think we'll wait till this guy lands. And Tower goes, Royer. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. Uh, <laughs> crazy. Yeah. You got to be, ca- I mean, you know, you got to be careful. completely nonchalant. Yeah. Concerned. yeah. I mean, yeah, well, I can't believe the Azul guy too. is just nonchalantly going down the runway. I mean, he never stops taxiing. Yeah, that was, that was the Azul guy. I yeah. Think. Yeah, but I mean, I don't think that you know. Apparently, there weren't any taxiways. I think it's the runway, right? And yeah. Then you, a lot of a lot of South yeah. American runways. You have one entrance. Yeah. One entrance, one exit. You enter midfield. You back taxi. At that point, you know, maybe the other airplane was far enough away so you couldn't really see it. What's he going to land on the parallel that doesn't exist? <laughs> well, I know, but I mean, you know, once you're taxiing down the runway, I mean, I don't know where you go from there when you see the airplane coming at you. <laughs> uh, yeah. You take to the grass. I, yeah, yeah, that's what yeah. I'd be thinking, taking to the grass. And uh, I'd be flashing my lights, all my takeoff and landing lights as fast as I could, trying yeah. to get the guy's attention. Good on the goal guy for going around yeah. mm-hmm. early, too, because I know my technique as the pilot monitoring is, you know, I'm coming into an airport. I'm looking, I'm, I know he's looking at his instruments or at his aiming point to land. I'm checking the runway, watching yep. guys holding short or crossing. I'm looking for that. Um, so, yeah, I'm always calling out, you know, like the the preceding aircraft is halfway yeah, down and your runway got a crosser on the first third mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, just watching for all that because so. you never know when somebody's going to either be given a bad clearance or just not be paying attention and encroaching upon your landing surface. All right. Um, That's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, it was a good one. On another note, I'd like to congratulate Captain Nick for the wonderful interview with his wife. I absolutely love the no fuss attitude Jilly showed throughout Nick's career. Uh, This is a prime example of a true partnership where both parties are working toward the same goal, even though sometimes they are half a world away from each other. Her support, understanding, and drive to get things done is remarkable and are certainly a key to Nick's success as a pilot and overall as a family. You are indeed a very lucky man, Nick. Oh, thank you. Cheers to that. And Nick, you know, considering I had a a career much like yours uh, and a spouse for the whole time, uh, I can relate to, I, that was kind of tear jerking for me personally. I really appreciated that Gilly did that and she did a great job doing it. I mean, I was glued listening to that. I was just so enthralled with how well you two handled it. And, uh, because it really hits home and how difficult all those times were. I think it was an American uh, wife who gave her her T-shirt, which said, uh, Air Force pi- wife, hardest job in the Air Force. And she wore that with pride for many years. As she should. I know it was a lot harder on her than it was on me. And, you know, and Gilly, it was the same thing for you. It's a lot harder for the wives left behind. And um, I know... Uh, when I was deployed in the 80s and early 90s, um, there was no email, no phone calls. And, uh, you know, so it was very difficult to keep in touch. It was. Um, in fact, Jilly sometimes thinks that's the best way to, for it to have happened. Because <laughs> almost, you know, to find out that there's all sorts of things going wrong and there's because you, you're so far away, there's nothing you can do, is almost worse um, than not finding out at all until you get home. And everything always breaks when you're gone. Of course. Of course. Yep. Yeah. I'm a lucky man. I agree. I share that. 
with, and you know, my hat's off to Gilly um, and to you for having succeeded like we did. And it's, it's hard. Absolutely. All right. Resisting the urge to hit the button. Uh, Stuart writes in, I'm a fan of Christian Van Heist, a 747 cargo pilot who takes a lot of cool in-flight photos from the flight deck. He posts not only imagery, but fascinating explanations about the context of the image, how it was taken, where it was taken, and all the ga- that good stuff. He posted a lovely image today on Facebook showing how tightly packed the aircraft were flying eastbound and westbound for hours on end. I guess there was some exchanging of pleasantries between the various air crews where one of the planes flashed his landing lights in a gesture of goodbye. But it was the comment section that made me laugh. Apparently, Airbus crews don't have the option to flash their landing lights like this in midair to say goodbye. Ha ha. That was from Stuart, not me. Anyway, so he says, so, Captain Nick. Just how do Airbus crews say goodbye to their fellow aircraft in the lonely night sky? Surely you must have a button to push somewhere, or do Airbus crews not practice old-fashioned airmanship? They just rock their wings? It's automatic. <laughs> so yeah. I find it hard well, to no, believe we, that you don't we, have a way of doing that. We have a special way of pushing the button. That's how we push it. There we go, just like that. Um, oh, very nice. And, uh, no, of course we can flash our... That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. You just another Airbus. Yeah, I know on the A300 we could. Yeah, this bloke flies a Boeing, so we wouldn't flash them. Ah. And yeah, being snobs. No, it's like like I drive a Jeep and we only Ah, wave to other Jeeps. Right. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. If you're driving a big hog, you're driving a Harley, you wouldn't uh, flash a bloody uh, rice rocket rider, would you? You know, someone like Honda. You, you give him the finger. You say, "Up yours, mate. I'm in a hog here." So, so the jag doesn't uh, yeah. wave to the beamer. Doesn't wave to the the rolls. Doesn't wave no, to the floor. exactly exactly right. So uh, yeah, we do that, and uh, I, I'm just going to take exception. That's not old-fashioned airmanship. That's just flashing your lights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to, although to be fair, uh, there are some places in the world where it's very common practice, and one of those, for example, would be over Africa where we're in one of those areas where we have to make extra transmissions on an air-to-air frequency for all our positions uh, just to make sure because air traffic control isn't quite at the same standard there as you might hope for in other or might get in other parts of the world. So we make a backup aircraft aircraft communications continually. And when we're doing there, we always fly an offset and uh, we would frequently uh, flash each other there just to make sure that the bloke coming towards you has seen you and doesn't try to do an unexpected climb or something uh, in case his air uh, traffic controller has given him an erroneous um, clearance. So that that would be much more common. But even then, you know, although I made the point of always flashing people, I see uh, not everyone flashes back. Um, so. Trust me, for personal experience, I've seen Nick flash a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) So, Nick, did you call those IATA broadcasts in Africa? IATA? Yes. Yeah, we had to do those in South America for a long time as well. And we would do the same thing. We would turn our lights on at different periods. And if, you know, just happened to see somebody on a transponder, you'd turn your lights on to make sure that they saw you as well. So it's more self-preservation there. Yeah. Yeah. Down there. I mean, I had an airplane go by me in the middle of the night. The only reason I saw him was with full moon. He had no lights on and he wasn't on the TCAS. Ooh, wow. Yeah. wow. Gun, gun runner? Uh, yeah, probably drugs, but yeah. 
But you know, it's I don't know about you guys, but it seems to me that I still flash my lights, especially at night when you know ATC calls out traffic and I I see them and I'll flash my lights. And a lot of guys don't return that. I mean, to me, that was like a common courtesy kind of thing. I do that too. So I must have passed you one night because at least one person has done it to me. Yeah, (laughs) I don't get offended if they don't. Yeah, I don't either. It's just that I I still do. Yeah, there's a lot of Airbus pilots out there. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Um. Well, Stuart Thompson from Edmonton, Canada, says he's been loving the show since APG '85. Wow! Which, which kind of another patient, Steph? The, I know. It, 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 you know what? The waiting list—it's so long right now. But see, it raises the question to me: Is uh, so you didn't like the shows before? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. Should have got about 120 to listen to. Yeah. Okay. Got your number, Stuart. All yeah. right. I, I'd mark your card as well. So I'd just watch out if you ever come to a meetup. <laughs> uh, Texas Charlie writes in, is Airbus promoting a new propulsion system? Oh, and then he sends good. us a, a photo here. Uh, I don't know if this is the best way to extol the virtues of the A340, but maybe Airbus has found a new propulsion system. Where's Captain Al? I always prefer the smell of Jet A exhaust, but who am I to stand in the way of progress? I'm just glad I'm not a ramp worker, Texas Charlie. And he has his picture here that has a, uh, has a 330. Some, it was a, oh no, it's a 340 actually. Uh, oh, it's a 340. Yeah. So, so that's the, a really old picture. Yeah, it is an old picture. It says longer, he, he acknowledges that too. He, he knows it. But. Longer, larger, fart. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a door, door open. open. There. Yeah. So I, uh, I assume it says well, farther. Well, yeah. <laughs> Didn't Captain, Al, didn't Captain Al fly? No, he only flew 330s. He didn't fly 340s. No. Ca- I don't think Captain Al even flew the 330. I don't think he's flown. Yes, he did. Hey, did yeah, he? He oh, did. did he? Oh, yeah, okay. He did. My bad. Sorry. My apologies, Captain Al. Okay. Uh, let's see. Continuing on with Rob. Oh, this is good. He says, I just saw this article and was a little disappointed to read it. I will be like one guy said, taking, taking stickers on his next flight. Why would he do that? Well, he sends us a link to an article regarding Singapore Airlines. Passenger discovers a camera fixed to the in-flight entertainment screen. And uh, this is from, hopefully I'll have this information. Travel9.com Australia. Oh, thank you. Travel9.com Australia. Oh, I didn't see it up there. Thank you. Um, A passenger aboard a Singapore Airlines Boeing 787 flight has made a disturbing discovery. Uh, Vitale Kamluk noticed something odd about his in-flight TV screen, a small webcam and sensor, which he photographed and uploaded to Twitter. He quotes, just found this interesting sensor looking at me from the seat back on board a Singapore Airlines flight. Any expert opinion of whether this is a camera? And Twitter users were quick to reply to Mr. Kamluk, each with their own theory to why the in-flight screens were fitted with cameras. And uh, let's see, Twitter user KR33P3R1000. Do you follow him? I think I I do. Uh, Depends on what type, though. Could be infrared to see if somebody is using the seat. Could be an eye tracker to see if the passenger has fallen asleep. It could be for security reasons. Um, Anyway, the airline itself said that, yes, that it indeed is a camera that came built into the in-flight entertainment system, but they promise that the camera is not in use. 
Uh, we would like to share that some of our newer in-flight entertainment systems provided by the original equipment manufacturers do have a camera embedded in the hardware, according to a tweet by Singapore Airlines. These cameras have been disabled on our aircraft, and there are no plans to develop any features using the cameras. I think it's a, cam a Panasonic system, but I'm not completely sure. But uh, yeah, that sounds like a reasonable answer. Probably not a probably a lie, but yeah, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just wondering what they think someone's going to do with uh, how many seats, 300 seats, uh, nine-hour flight, uh, the, the thousands of hours of video that they're supposedly going to record. What, do they really think people are going to sit and watch all that to see if someone picks their nose? I, I really don't understand why you would be concerned. I don't either. It's Yeah, I'm I'm not one to really get. I've, I've followed this article. It's it's gone on a couple weeks now. Uh, Singapore acknowledges that the cameras are there. At least one Ameri uh, U.S. airline has the same uh, entertainment system with the same camera. They are supposedly installed for future operations. Uh, I guess for like phone calls and stuff, video like conferencing, seat to seat, uh... seat to seat kind of thing. Uh, supposedly they are all deactivated. Uh, like I said, at least one U.S. airline uses the system. And uh, so Singapore says that they're not activated. The U.S. company says that they're not activated and that they're for future use. Uh, I think it's just Nick and it's the perversion of the cockpits. <laughs> <laughs> hey, check out 4A. Yeah. yeah. Well, you think that's good. Look at 33C. <laughs> there you go. Well, I, I think it goes along with the uh, napkins that Delta Airlines had recently. It was all part of the plan. <laughs> I think I will you say, get to check out I what you're, the, you're uh, flirting with. The flight with. I was just on, the uh, entertainment system, did allow for seat-to-seat -seat chat, which was limited functionality at best. Yeah. Oh, we, we've, uh, for years, uh, you've been able to t um, chat uh, text between seats on our aircraft. Yeah, it was, it was rather clumsy, I'll say that much. It was easier, actually, just to join the Wi-Fi and send text messages. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. All right. Simon has a question for us. He uh, writes in, my name's Simon. I live in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, I'm in the chat room, most shows, but the last few weeks I've been away with work fighting bushfires. Uh, anyway, on a previous episode, Captain Jeff briefly mentioned the average age of pilots passing away after they retire. I mentioned to you in the chat room about aerotoxic syndrome. So my question is, what is everybody's thoughts on the subject? Uh, also, would be good to hear what Dr. Steph has from a medical view on it. Uh, thank you, Simon. So Simon um, probably hasn't been listening for a long time. Um, and we have talked about aerotoxic syndrome on our show before. And the fact that uh, Nick and I... Not saying that it's not a real thing. It's just that we haven't really seen a lot of evidence, personally, uh, anecdotal evidence regarding the the uh, the risk to aerotoxic syndrome. We are aware of uh, events occurring and people uh, allegedly suffering um, some serious health issues that they're claiming are due to aerotoxic syndrome, which of course is the um, the burning of 
certain oils and then it leaking through the seals and the engines of most airplanes out there that have the kind of pressurization uh, pneumatic bleed systems that uh, um, are in, are in common use. Uh, I think the only uh, airliner that I can think of offhand at at the moment that doesn't have this kind of system is the uh, the Dreamliner, the uh, seven eighty seven. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know there is concern that uh, with leaky seals, you know, older engines and the burning of certain types of uh, engine lubricants that uh, certain dangerous toxic compounds can be ingested into the pneumatic bleed air system, which of course is the air that's used to run the air conditioning packs and pressurize the aircraft. So it's the air that we're breathing in the uh, air. I've actually seen this for real. Uh, I had a flight attendant, fortunately it was at the gate, uh, where we had to remove her from the flight. Hmm. I actually had her, during boarding, I had to bring her in the cockpit, put her on oxygen. Wow. Because she was reacting. There was something in the cabin air that was absolutely killing her. And I had to have her removed from the flight. But was it? You know, None of it. N- nobody else reacts. Yeah. But yeah, you know, mm-hmm. this I was told by some of the other flight attendants that this woman did have. She was sensitive, like the perfumes and like carpet mm-hmm. cleaners and stuff. That's so it wasn't probably new. a more likely thing. She yeah. was probably reacting yeah. to it. So someone's detergent or lotion or perfume. Um, those things can cause. Yeah. The interesting thing about this aerotoxic system, uh, I've I've kind of followed this a little bit. Um, the seven three does not have this problem, to my knowledge. Uh, the uh, the three twenty series does, and it's not the three twenties with the CFM engine. It's the three twenties with the other engine, and I can't remember the name of it. The uh, the, the engine that we're using on the ninety. The uh, is that same one V twenty five. Yeah, that's the engine that series. they're having problems with the seals causing uh, toxicity toxicity in the air, and uh, <laughs> it's yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. I'm going, what's he doing? Is he having a seizure over here or what? I'm getting ready to call 911. Um, (laughs) So, um, uh (laughs) uh-oh. All right, the real Captain Jeff's taking over. I got to figure out this board. Well, I looked up what the uh, medical uh, professions have to say about it, and um, they don't, basically. (laughs) Gee, thanks, Um, Steph. (laughs) I, I looked it up. I did do my homework on this one. I pulled up Harrison's. If it's not in, in Harrison's, it doesn't exist. Um, That's what I always it's say. Definitely not in in here. Um, I did uh, do a cursory PubMed search, looking for different articles. There's a lot of articles related to people investigating aerotoxic oh. syndrome. Short and reading. what's that? Short reading material there. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> light light <Not>. bedtime <laughs> stories here. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, heavy. And, um, or workout material. I don't know. Um, so basically this gets back to the question of, uh, organophosphates and tricrystal phosphates, um, and whether or not, uh, one particular isomer triorthocrystal phosphate, God bless uh, you. you're welcome. Yeah. Is to blame because that one is known to be neurotoxic. And if you're exposed to it, um, it, it can cause problems. Um, the question is whether that is something that can uh, contaminate cabin air or not. And as far as I can tell, they've never been able to isolate it in cabin air, um, doing running different tests and models with, you know, burning different types of engine oils and things like that. Now the regular tricrystal phosphates, yes, but not the triorthocrystal phosphates. And if I'm, if anyone out there is a chemist or does research on this and my data is inaccurate or wrong, feel free to correct me. But that's what I'm able to find on short, uh, 
searching. I think I do need to mention that my whole point about the subject of the average age of death after retirement, I was trying to make the point, apparently I didn't do a very good job with it, is that I think now pilots are living longer after retirement than they used to. Yes. Not not shorter lives. There was a guy I flew with uh, years ago who actually uh, did a study. He tracked the guys who retired at our airline. And most guys, like 80% of the guys weren't living past 65. Right. And I think a lot of that, um, and now that the retirement age is 65, uh, he's obviously retired by now, but I don't think that's a factor anymore. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, we weren't doing anything else besides flying. Guys weren't taking care of themselves. A lot of guys were smokers, heavy drinkers, that kind of thing. And not only that, I think also because that was all they did in their lives was fly airplanes. And then they lost that sense of worth because they were no longer flying airplanes and it didn't have any other hobbies or any other yeah. things like going Nick, on. Nick is going to retire to the bowling fields yeah, and his dogs well, and his yeah. photography. And a lot of guys don't have that. Um, there was something came up in the chat room about uh, somebody's asking the question, who is it? Uh, uh, 7819 Tim is asking about radiation. Uh, this same guy also wore a radiation tag. Uh, believe it or not, airline pilots receive more radiation than the average nuclear power plant worker on an annual basis. And we do not wear the ra radiation badges that they wear. The guys flying the North Atlantic uh, receive the most. The guys flying the Pacific uh, routes fly, uh, get the same kind of exposure. The higher you are, the more exposure you get. It's typically like like an extra chest x-ray a year. So it's not significant, but we do get exposed more than the average person on the ground. And I believe and, Nick's airline tracks how much average they're being exposed to. Oh, absolutely. Radiation. We do. I know my airline because. looks at, this, at the solar flare activity especially, and they will, they will absolutely reroute us when its activity is high um, and yeah. to lower altitudes and lower latitudes. Because the higher you go up in latitude, the worse it gets. The closer to yeah, the we poles. have uh, radiation monitors, Jeff, on uh, several of our aircraft, and they they keep an average indication. And then uh, the company keeps a very close track on uh, the crew members and uh, which routes they fly. For example, when we had uh, Tokyo as a route, and the Japanese crew used to fly only that route because they flew it so often, and we knew what their average uh, radiation exposure was likely to be. They uh, would take them off there regularly and put them on routes to a lower latitude to give them a break from that because the company uh, is obliged to um, monitor that and keep an eye on it. So, yeah, it's going to cause a problem, but we're keeping a much closer track on it than ever they would have done in the old days. Yeah, I know guys who won't go above 37 or 35 or 37,000 feet, no matter what their flight planned at because of the radiation. Well, like that 2,000 feet is going to make a difference when you're yeah, that high. So, I know. Uh, I would slap him around the head and tell him to grow up. But um, there I is never go above 37,000 feet. Because that's the size <laughs> you of your plane go. <laughs> <laughs> you going to slap I'm me reading, around the head? I'm reading huh? here huh? about uh, various <laughs> studies about how long pilots live. And there, there's nothing ever been done that's authoritative. Uh, and all the studies that, that have, were done were done a considerable time ago before we extended the age to 65. And if had there been any concerns about our ability to live uh, uh, beyond the age of 65, or if they were worried we were going to die, they would never have increased the 
medical age to 65. So I think monitoring and medical um, advances have ensured that we will all have a very long and happy retirement. Hey, Nick, a quick question. There was a lawsuit uh, that I read about, and it was several months ago, maybe up to a year ago, where some guy, it was a pilot who sued the EU uh, because he was being forced to retire at 65. He said it was age discrimination. Have you heard any more about that over there? Uh, no, but the age is 65. So. I understand that. I just wonder if you'd heard more, any more about the lawsuit because he didn't want to retire. No, because uh, I, I, that would have been a contractual thing with his airline, and I don't think you go against that. If you've signed a contract, then uh, you know, you're obliged to stick to it. But if they fired him through ageism, then there's a good chance he would have won because. That's but isn't the EASA rule sixty-five? Yes, it is. That's what he was suing for because it was the EAS, the EASA rule that was forcing him to retire. Oh, like, that was the bloke that wanted to extend to beyond yes. sixty-five. Yes. No, I haven't heard any more about that. I think that's died a death, or it's still waiting to come. Uh, okay, just know, curious. Into the courts. Can I add one more thing to my really um, nerdy science uh, no. stuff that I was no. looking up here? <laughs> no. no. Okay. Real quick. Okay. Okay. Because okay. I, I found one more article here while you all were, were talking to. And it sounds like this um, article, they were able to find, I was talking about those ortho substituted uh, tricresyl phosphates. They were able to find it in the cabin air, but they weren't able to produce that quantity from uh, the engine oil that they found. So they think there's other sources that are perhaps contributing to some of these things that might be supposedly responsible for aerotoxic syndrome, but they couldn't even definitively link any of that so we'll probably find it's a hair, the, hair product yeah the answer is we we don't have good evidence An for answer. what causes those <laughs> yeah. symptoms for people basically yeah sorry just wanted to put that no that's good thank you for putting the exclamation the dot on the exclamation point yeah just making sure i stay above that 50 percent so okay mm -hmm. um liz tells us that she googled the um the lawsuit and it's still ongoing Thanks, Liz. She's always there when you need her. Yeah, no kidding. Hey, you know, we've heard from Texas Charlie on several pieces of uh, email feedback, and uh, he decided to finally send us some audio feedback. So Good. let's hear from him. Howdy, guys and gals. I hope this audio feedback finds everyone good. I'd like to talk about ULCs. My daughter's horrendous experience recently on Spirit tells me that it takes a special type of person and she is, to put up with the issues that ULC carriers have created. As I'm just a few months older than Captain Jeff, I remember flying in the DC-3, Convair 380, Convair 880, the Connie, and the 707. These were days when coach seats were wide and comfortable, food was pretty good, and the cigarette smoke hung heavy in the air. That's all gone now. Except for the cigarettes, flying was special. Tickets were expensive. Passengers dressed up to fly. It was an adventure. Today, I appreciate being able to fly to the coast for less than it would cost me to drive, but the trade-off has been to turn the back end of a commercial flight into a bus ride, but with worse seats and smaller labs. That being said, customers who consider price as the only factor in decision-making might be willing to put up with more hardships in order to save even more. Now, let's say the 737 MAX 200 could be increased from 200 seats to 240 seats by installing Avionteer saddle seats. Non-flight deck wages could be lowered, and we've already talked about supplementing cabin crew wages with tips. 
and maybe customers could be charged by the pound, baggage and person. And with fuel a major cost factor, planes with minimal windows are lighter and use less fuel, so we could see windows only for pilots, cabin crew, and emergency exits. And heck, maybe in lieu of a lav, flyers could pay extra for a catheter in a bag. You think it sounds crazy? I would have thought so too. But the tremendous increase in the number of ULC carriers tells me that the how low can you go business model will lead to many ULCs to race to the bottom. And according to Aviation Week, even though ULC long-haul carriers have yet to make a profit, more and more carriers are trying the long-haul ULC business model. Seems like everyone wants to join the flying bus party. My research shows that at $0.08 cents per seat mile for a ULC carrier, a one-way ticket from Dallas to L.A. costs the carrier $112 a seat. And a little more research shows a one-way ticket from Dallas to L.A. on Spirit is going for $177. With flyers making decisions on differences of a few bucks, if a super ultra-low-cost carrier could knock down the per-seat mile price to $0.06, cents, Dallas to L.A. at $153 would probably turn the heads of a lot of flyers. So... For flyers who are used to business or first class, maybe looking for super ultra bargains isn't a thing. But maybe there are enough flyers out there who have a high crap tolerance to support super ultra low cost carriers. I'd love to know what the panel's opinions are. Do you have an idea as to how far this thing's going to go? Love the show. You know I do. Keep up the good work. Texas Charlie out. Bye. We do. Texas Charlie and we love hearing your voice. That That's awesome. Great. That, that was that was an <laughs> awesome feedback and it's so stinking true it's not funny. <laughs> How low can they go? Dr. Snow, well, Dr. Steph's not the right person to ask. Well, She's I still a premium think I have a high flyer. crap tolerance. Do you? No, I don't. Well, yeah. Well, She's it uh, well, you're on the show, so you apparently <laughs> you do. <Yeah. laughs> Who's uh, crack are we talking about? No, 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 not crack. Crap. Crap. Oh, oh, C-R-A-P. Which comes from the crack, but yes, <laughs> that's a whole different show. TMI. Yeah. Um, how, yeah. Uh, I don't know. The catheter thing. Oh. I think that's going, maybe, maybe diapers, uh, yeah. but uh, yeah, the yeah, catheter. Everybody gets kind handed of hands as they get on the airplane. Oh. Isn't it Ryanair, the chart, you have to put a euro in the door to get into the loo on their airplanes? Oh, no, really? I think that's an exaggeration. Yeah, I think that somebody made that up. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That might you're, be a you're, Saturday you're Night Live pile of skip. more fake news there, yeah. handsome Jeff. Well, it, that's all there is in the United States. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been to learn that. Um, it will creep down, though. I mean, it's gonna, it's bound to because, you know, you've got a lot of these airlines and they're all fighting for the seat. But eventually, I think you're going to get to a point where a sort of medium priced, something that uh, the sort of middle classes can afford and get a, a, a much nicer uh, experience are going to sort of reemerge. So I think this is going to be like a sinusoidal wave. It'll go down and then somebody will go, you know what, I'm going to aim myself at the slightly, at the, the sort of, you know, middle market and uh, produce a, a, a much nicer experience and people are going to flock there and that'll drag the ultra, 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 ultra low back up to some kind of level of acceptancy. But uh, yeah, it's got to find its own level. It's heading downwards and it's a very sad, sad. Situation. It's just so sad. You know, you hear these people complain, I'm never flying this airline ever again. 
until it's the cheapest fare from point A to point B, which is where oh, they want to exactly. go. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, I, I think you're right though, Nick. I think there's a lot of people out there who are willing to pay not a lot more, not business class, first class fares, but a modest amount more, medium amount more for slightly more leg room to be able to check a bag and not have to deal with it. Um, to be able to, it's the things that to me, it doesn't seem quite as important, but getting on the plane earlier, you know, if you aren't checking a bag and want to have bin space available. Um, yeah. so I think, or Book maybe have a free, maybe have a, well, that goes without saying, um, or maybe have a drink with your seat included. Um, yeah. there's a fair number of airlines that offer something in that range right now for not a whole lot more than what their basic, basic, basic bottom barrel economy is, you know, oftentimes yeah. like 50 bucks, a hundred bucks a seat. Um, do you think it's, and I think a lot of people go for it. Do you think it's the the folks that go for it are the ones that do it more than like once a year? I think so. I think the people who go for the ultra, well, I think there's a couple things that happen. I think there's folks who um, truly can't afford to spend more on it um, and are go always going to pick the least expensive option because that's economical and it's going to allow them to get from point A to point B. And heck, at the end of the day, all the seats go to the same place, right? Right. Um, so there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but then I think the folks who do travel more often and don't want some of the hassles that come along with it and perhaps are somewhat more uh, middle class are going to say, you know what, for me, that's that's worth the slightly extra costs to have a slightly nicer experience. Where I see the so. problem is for the infrequent flyer who, you know, who gets on an ultra low cost, low cost carrier you know, and he has all of a sudden he finds that he's got to pay five dollars because he got his ticket online. Right. Shows up at the counter and it's oh, I didn't get my boarding pass, so that's an extra fifteen dollars at the gate. Oh, I got to check a bag, that's an extra twenty five dollars. Oh, I want to bring a bag on the airplane, that's another fifteen dollars. So now that ultra low cost carrier with the twenty eight inch seat pitch is more expensive than the mainline carrier with the thirty inch seat pitch with no extra charges. Yeah, I hear that yeah. a lot. And, you know, I talk to a, a lot of my coworkers, surprisingly, don't fly a lot or often. Um, and a lot of them are drawn to some of the low cost carriers because it's something they're doing just every once in a while to go on vacation. And they'd like to, you know, not spend all their money getting from point A to point B on their on their flight. They'd like to save it for, you know, Disney World or Las Vegas or wherever it is that they're going. Um, but I always make sure this to say, you know, if you're going to fly those airlines, fine. It's they're perfectly fine, perfectly safe. Just make sure you read all the fine print and know what the restrictions are, so you're not surprised by the things that Jeff just mentioned. I know it used to be, you know, people used to think that Southwest was always the cheapest, and there are some routes where they're not. I know, oh, not at all. It used to be true, like everybody would think that you know, flying from Dallas to Houston would be Southwest, and it was actually American was the cheaper fare. And that was, you know, that was several years ago. I don't know if that's true anymore, but. It's still true. Yep. Yep. So it's, still true. it's not that Southwest is an ultra low, low cost carrier. You know, you're talking more of the long lines of uh, Spirit and Frontier and. Uh, mm -hmm. Allegiant. You know, Allegiant. and Allegiant and things like, you know, and in Europe you have Ryanair and Jet2. Um, you know, in the international carriers, there's a, you know, in our Slack, uh, there's a conversation going on right now about guys looking at going to. Uh, Europe this summer out of the out of the states on Norwegian, and they're wondering is Norwegian still going to be around because they're they're in financial difficulty right now. Oh, very good question, and I don't even know if they're uh, uh, IATA not IATA. What's the uh, protection? That I we don't have think in they're the UK? see because it's different here in the states oh. and it is there, Nick significantly different on protection. It depends on what country they're 
yeah. truly based out of. Yeah. So, so you know, uh, if it's an American it, buying so they, a ticket on Norwegian, it wouldn't could be covered. Go down. Right. So, it, you know, and there was a conversation going on in our Slack room earlier today about that and guys looking at traveling this summer. So, um, I mean, they've actually leased, sold, leased or taken loans out against some of their 787s. Just to some extra cash flow, like 30 million to kind of keep them going. Uh, That's never a good sign. Mm -mm. No. Yeah. Just be careful out there and make sure you have some kind of a insurance that if the airline does. A credit card is the way to go because that there is some insurance there with a credit card. You can stop payment. Yeah. Check with uh, your credit card too. Yeah. And check with the credit card. Not all credit cards are created equal. That's true. I'll say that. But normally a credit card would be the best way to go. Main man, Micah says. Yeah. Well, thank you, Texas Charlie, again, for that great audio feedback. And, and now we know what he sounds like. Yeah. Look forward to hearing more from. And he's definitely from Texas. TC. Sounds like he's from Texas. <laughs> sure yeah. does. I was going to ask if that's a Texican uh, accent. Oh, it's a Texas Tex- accent. Texas, not Tex- Texas. Texan. Texan. Look, I've, I've listened to John Wayne. He calls them Texicans. That's not a Texican accent. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well. We're going to listen to this week's installment of Plain Tales, and then we're going to slap Nick around a little bit while we're gone for the <laughs> yeah. next 18 minutes and 45 seconds. Perfect. Good luck with that. Okay. <laughs> the old pilot's Plain Tales. Capture prone. I'm going back a wee while now to my time in the military and I remember that we used to be given resistance to interrogation or RTI training. This used to be fairly low key and you only got the tough stuff if you were unlucky or silly enough to volunteer for the long combat survival course. I got fairly close to being given the treatment, hours in stress positions, under a hood, listening to white noise, etc., during the Bad Colgrub winter survival course. This particular course was famous, not for the week in the Bavarian countryside up to one's thighs in snow, but for the eight days of skiing that we were also subjected to. The end of the field training included a 20-kilometre march through the night to reach an RV from where we would be rescued and spend the rest of the day in a beautiful hot spa. Of course, if we were captured by the German ski troops who were out looking for us, then you could substitute the hot spa with its compulsory no-clothes policy for 24 hours in a dank, freezing cellar where no clothes were also frequently compulsory. The point of the process was to familiarise the individual with a small taste of what it might be like to be captured and also allow the interrogators an opportunity to practice their art on some live bodies. They weren't allowed to have a go at just anyone since their activities would probably fall under the UN's definition of torture. This treatment could only be justified for a special class of military personnel called capture-prone. During the Cold War, extensive preparations had been made to bring downed aircrews back across the East German border using brave underground resistance groups that, despite being on the wrong side of the border, were committed to help the West. 
These groups, in a similar way to the French resistance during the Second World War, had volunteered to provide concealment and transport to air crews in danger of capture. The risk that they lived under, even on a day-to-day basis, had their participation ever become known to the Soviet authorities, was considerable. And had they ever had to put their plans into action, they risked being executed as collaborators with the West. Near the border on the West side, others had also joined such groups, anticipating the day that during the war they might end up on the wrong side of the front. In peacetime, during major exercises, some of these groups would practice the methods that they would use for real, with volunteer aircrew who played the part and spent days, sometimes a week or more, living in cellars and being bundled into hiding places in cars as the underground transported them to safety. I expect that things have changed a lot now, but back then only aircrew and special forces were considered capture-prone. As things moved on and we transitioned from the Cold War to more recent conflicts, in a variety of theatres, this training has become compulsory and a lot more serious. Of course, ejecting, bailing out or crash-landing and ending up in the hands of the enemy isn't a new thing. It's been happening for as long as air forces have been around, so has always been a concern to military pilots, but something that is generally thought to be just part of the job. That's a pretty flippant statement, considering what I'm about to talk about later, but you only have to listen to Glenn Torpy's interview to hear what he thought about one of the RAF's ideas, the ghoulie chit. Otherwise known as a blood chit, it was a letter written in the local dialect which promised the finder a large reward should they return the bearer to friendly authorities with everything intact, hence the name Ghoulie Chit. To back up the promise, the downed airman carried a number of gold sovereigns which could be used as a down payment. As a signatory to the Geneva Convention, RAF personnel should always expect to be treated in a humane manner, so long as your captors are also bound by it, and if they can be bothered to afford the crew that has just bombed their homeland such luxuries. Of course, there are some notable countries which have not agreed to abide by the convention, and many guerrilla groups, freedom fighters, irregular armies and such, that would probably have never even heard of it. If one were to fall into such hands, then anything might, and has, happened. Even amongst enemies, such as Germany and the Allied forces during the Second World War, when prisoner treatment should have been guaranteed, things sometimes didn't go as they should. This tale gets rather dark here, so perhaps not ideal for young ears, but it is a well-documented part of history. It's the story of the Wham Bam Thank You Ma'am boys. Now, Wham Bam Thank You Ma'am was a consolidated B-24 Liberator bomber of the United States Army Air Force that had been on a bombing mission over Hanover on the 24th of August 1944. 
Its target had been an airfield, but it was hit by anti-aircraft fire and the crew were forced to abandon their crippled aircraft and parachute to safety. As they came down near a town called Hutterup, a lookout alerted the local fire brigade and a military detachment at the nearby airfield that enemy airmen were amongst them, and patrols were sent out to find the Americans. One of the nine Americans had been hit by shrapnel in the belly and was in a bad way, but he was lucky enough to land near a farmhouse, and the elderly couple there gave him first aid in return for his silk parachute. It didn't take more than a few hours to capture the crew, and they were taken to the town hall of Grieven for interrogation, after which the injured man was taken to a clinic to receive medical attention whilst the rest were incarcerated at the local airbase for the night. The next morning, leaving their wounded colleague behind to receive further treatment, the remainder of the crew were put on a train to begin their journey to the Dulag Luft, prisoner of war camp, near Frankfurt. The journey was slow, with frequent stops along the way, at which, as soon as the local German civilians noticed that Americans were on the train, Crowds would form at the windows, shouting in anger at the terror flyers, shaking their fists and spitting on the windows. That evening, the RAF launched a large bombing raid of 116 Lancasters to bomb the Opal factory at Russelsheim. They dropped 617 2,000-pound bombs and 40,000 incendiaries on their target, destroying much of the plant and damaging the rail tracks as well. This was by far the largest and most destructive attack made on Russelsheim up to that point. Inevitably, there was considerable damage also done to the town, and a local air raid warden helped to organise the residents to put out the fires. The next morning, the train carrying the Liberator crew continued its journey until the damaged rail tracks brought their train to a halt. The German guards took the prisoners off and then marched them through the town to continue their journey from the other side. The townspeople, in the aftermath of the recent devastating air raid, saw the Allied airmen and immediately assumed that they had been part of the attack on their town the previous night. As the crowd grew, it began to look ugly. Two women shouted out, There are the terror flyers. Tear them to pieces. Beat them to death. They have destroyed our houses. One of the Americans could speak German, and he replied, It wasn't us, we didn't bomb Russelsheim. But the townsfolk either didn't believe them, or perhaps it really didn't matter to them. Afterwards, they claimed that they mistook the airmen for Canadians from the RAF raid. The situation was becoming uncontrollable as the crowd turned into an angry lynch mob. As is often the case in these awful situations, it only takes one spark to light the fuse and it was a woman throwing a brick at the unarmed Americans that started the attack. During the riot that followed, 
the townspeople attacked the defenceless prisoners with rocks, hammers, sticks and shovels. Three opal workers arrived with iron bars and started beating the men to death to the cries of encouragement from the crowd. Whilst their German guards stood by doing absolutely nothing, the men were beaten to the ground, whereupon the air raid warden lined the men up in the gutter and shot them in the head. Six men were murdered, and all of them would have died there, except that the warden ran out of ammunition. They loaded the bloody bodies onto a cart and dragged them to a local cemetery. Any that made a noise were beaten again. All of them would have been murdered, but for providence, in the form of another bombing attack, and as the air raid siren sounded, the mob scattered. From under their dead comrades, William Adams and Sidney Brown crawled, somehow still alive. Despite their injuries, the pair escaped and evaded capture, heading for the Rhine River. Their freedom lasted four days until a policeman discovered them, and on their recapture they were eventually taken to the POW camp that had been their original destination. A year later, the town fell to the advancing Allied armies, and the atrocity came to light. Eleven residents of the town were tried for the murders. After a six-day trial, one was acquitted. Others received various jail sentences, but of the main players, the two women were sentenced to 30 years, whilst others, including the air raid warden, were executed. Later, a soldier was also found guilty and hanged as well. During the trial, the accused defended themselves by claiming that they had been incited to commit the crime by Goebbels' propaganda. That encouraged German people to take reprisals against downed airmen. Their defence was dismissed by the prosecution, who stated they were all grown-up men and women. If they are called upon to commit the murder, and they do... They are just as responsible as any other murderers. He also quoted the Geneva and Hague Conventions, of which Germany was a signatory, which stated that prisoners of war must at all times be humanely treated and protected, particularly against acts of violence, insults and public curiosity. Measures of reprisal against them are prohibited. And... It is especially forbidden to kill or wound an enemy who, having laid down his arms or having no longer means of defence, has surrendered. I believe I can see how easy it must have been to vent anger and bring death to those who were just doing their military duty, however destructive and heinous it might have seemed to those on the ground, and how they might have justified their actions by saying that the air crews had murdered innocent civilians. This is a moral dilemma that many with a greater understanding than mine, by far, have pondered over, and the conclusion remains, 
Even a war must be fought with rules. But what of the other side? Hundreds of German bombers laid waste to parts of London and many other cities. German air crews were shot down and captured. Egged on by Churchill's rhetoric, surely those, for example, of the East End, who suffered bombings for night after night, and who are renowned for their straight-talking and down-to-earth attitudes, must have taken out their anger on Luftwaffe pilots. Perhaps, unsurprisingly, there is very little evidence of any British equivalent atrocities, and I say unsurprisingly only because it is the victors who write the history books and conduct the war crime trials. However, in 1940, a Dornier DO-17 was attacked by several fighters over London. With his aircraft crippled, the pilot, Oberleutnant Robert Zieb, had abandoned his aircraft and was floating down towards the city. Zieb was to come down in Kennington, his parachute fouling on a telegraph pole, leaving him some feet from the ground. Drawn out into the streets by the sound of the overhead battle, the people of Kennington watched as the German descended on them. So far, all is fact and traceable. It's what happened next that is shrouded in myth and half-truth. The crowd that had gathered around Zeeb were in an angry mood. Of that there seems to be no doubt. A local ARP warden was to record in his diary, enemy parachutists descended amongst hostile populace in Kennington. A reporter from the Daily Herald was also to note that Zeeb was to state, Camarade, Camarade, I'm an officer, I'm an officer. Some sources still state that the hapless Zeeb came down in Kennington where he was fiercely attacked by a mob of angry civilians. No one doubts that Zeeb died from his wounds, but these included bullet wounds as well as burns. It's possible that the mob was mainly made up of women who were after one thing, the silk of Zeeb's parachute. Grabbing him by the legs, they attempted to pull him down from his entrapment on the telegraph pole. No doubt, faced with a shouting, baying crowd, he was in some distress. However, some sources remain adamant that, when Robert Zeeb descended on London, there was a violent assault against the German airmen. The local police reported that a Superintendent Gillies of Kennington Road Police Station rescued Robert Zeeb from a lynch mob and arrested him. The police van then drove off, taking Zeeb to Millbank Military Hospital, where he died the next day. The local police later handed a leather case with some personal items as well as documents belonging to Robert Zeeb to the RAF. This same case was later presented to Superintendent Gillies, who in turn left it to the Metropolitan Police Museum, where it still resides. Robert Zeeb rests in the military section of Brookwood Cemetery at Woking in Surrey, England.
another wonderful plain tale. Thank you, Captain Nick. Well, thank you, Jeff. Uh, a bit of a sad one, I thought. That poor American B-24 crew had a dreadful time of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, a fascinating, pardon me, subject, though. Uh, oh, dear. <laughs> Excuse me. I've been supping beer. Yes. Yeah, I, I, all I, choked I, up I, about we it resemble there for a second. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm afraid it's a bit of wind. <laughs> I, I, uh, we'll just say that you were all choked up. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, but it is a bit of a sad story. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I apologize in advance for next week's, which is even sadder. Well, wh- where are you it. going with this whole plain tale thing? Make sure it's you all don't sad lead story. in with a super happy story or, or on uh, the other we end get a happy story. We'll, we'll get a happy one one day. Okay, good. Well, we're always happy to listen to yeah. them, whether they're happy or bad or sad. They're I just wondered bad. how how well that story is known in the in the United States. I had not heard of it. I didn't. I didn't know it. Mm-mm. I hadn't heard of the one last week either. The, oh, fair enough. The B thirty six one. I had not heard yeah. of that one. Interesting. I knew about the eight turning, two burning, but and one on fire. Yeah, I I knew all those stories, but uh, not that particular one. Well, of course, uh, since you tried to nuke Canada, I expect you probably would have swept that one under. The well, that carpet. was one of those <laughs> epic fails. You know, we we attempted to nuke yeah. Canada and we we failed. It didn't yeah. work. Yeah, I know. Damn. Every time we try to invade Canada since like the early eighteen hundreds on, it's never worked. <laughs> no, no, you keep you keep. As soon as you cross the border, you fall asleep. Yeah, yeah. Then <laughs> they're such nice people. You, you know, yeah, they just oh. apologize before we even do anything, and we're like, yeah. okay. Well, except Fair for enough. the people in Toronto. <laughs> uh let's see thanks again nick for putting all the i know you it's you, you spent a lot of time on these and uh we just don't know how you're able to yeah. keep up that my hat's off to you nick great quality i is it's, i enjoy doing them that's that's how i do it yeah i look yeah. at how many takes how many times it takes me to get through an audio feedback one and i go how does he do these plain tales every week <laughs> he's a pro that's how yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Plenty of time on my hands, obviously. You're going to have a lot more in about four months. Time on my hands. Yay. All right. Hey, you know, Deanna, she's in uh, North Carolina, uh, just up the road from uh, where uh, you are, Steph. Yep. Not too far. far Yeah, not too bad. Not too far. Um, Actually, no. uh, Right there in, um, what's it called? Um, Burlington. Burlington? uh, North Carolina, very close to the school where a lot of my money has gone. Oh, mm-hmm. um, and uh, she writes in, she says, good evening. I'll be traveling from Raleigh, Durham to Atlanta on April 16th to visit the Delta Flight Museum and hopefully fly the 737 SIM. A real airplane. <laughs> I'm on Acme 2460 from Raleigh, Durham to Atlanta at 630 a.m. and flight 2353 for the return at 924 p.m. It would be great to be able to join a meetup or have Captain Jeff or Captain Dana fly my flight. And again, this yeah, is but it's in a museum. Yeah, but last time I was at that museum, it was a it was a great place to be because there was a yeah. lot of beer. I think is that the way it is all the time, stuff. That that was my impression. Yeah. So yeah, make sure to be greeted. With- my comment was a counter to the handsome Jeff when he said a real airplane. <laughs> I said, yeah, but it's in a museum. Ah, uh, we didn't catch sorry, that. Sorry, we moved on so oh, far I heard from it. that. <laughs> oh, you heard it. <laughs> <laughs> Went right over my head. 
Um, so uh, I, I wrote back to uh, Deanna and told her I would take a look at the trips that uh, could possibly be operating that flight um, out of Raleigh to Atlanta. Uh, but uh, I will definitely be flying that week because that is Holy Week. And I'm going to uh, try to fly on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday and be home for Thursday through the weekend mm-hmm. because that's kind of important for yes. us. And um yeah, and the 924 flight, uh, not unless it's a big mistake. I'm not going to be flying that. <laughs> I saw that 924. Yeah. I got Jeff, no. Maybe maybe, maybe Dana. Dana. <laughs> yeah, maybe Dana can fly that. Uh, but I'll take a look. I'll let you know if I'm able That's to. That's uh, Jeff's bedtime. Yeah, it depends on how good or bad the trip is. If it's a bad trip, then I don't know. Uh, but uh, perhaps other people in the Atlanta area can contact you, Deanna, and uh, have an impromptu uh, APG community meetup. So, especially those of you who weren't able to join us at the museum, the flight museum on, uh, what day was that? Well, last month sometime. Know. Yeah. Two weeks ago. <laughs> a couple weeks ago. Weeks. Yeah. Sounded like a good time. Yeah. Now, Deanna, um, she had, uh, informed us about her, um, what, what do you call that flight? The, um, like a, a intro flight, intro flight. Yeah. And I'm wondering, or did, or did she actually take a real? No, she took a lesson. I think or she went for her first yeah, lesson, right? A lesson. Oh, okay, it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, it, it can be, it can be, can right. be depending yeah. on. So I'm wondering if uh, she has had a chance to uh, take any more flights. Uh, she said that she thought it was a good thing because the instructor wasn't running away when they got on the ground. So uh, <laughs> that spurred a nice discussion. So Deanna, please let us know if you've uh, gone further into your flying career. That'd be kind of cool to to know. Um, this is from Shri. That's what he told me to call him at the end here. Um, I'm an airline pilot based out of Singapore. I fly Captain Nick's favorite airplane, the <laughs> bin liner. And every time I get a chance, I hop over to the US of A to fly my other Boeing. See attached picture. I love your show and the banter, but most of all, I love the best part of the show, the plane tales. And the other best part of the show, the feedback. <laughs> Must yeah, not have, be with the Rolls Royce engines. Uh, let's see here. So he has a picture of the, uh, there's a, a bin liner there and some pictures that I get oh. that are upside down. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, that's why I was like turning my head. I was like. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't fix these apparently, but I think the Boeing that he's talking about that he loves to fly when he's here in the good old US of A is a Boeing Stearman, which is a beautiful. It's beautiful. I love mm-hmm. the paint scheme. Yeah. Nice. I'd love to one day fly in one of those. He also your favorite. Yeah, I think he talks about this. Here, let me uh, go scroll back up. 141B. Yeah. C141B, we used to call it. Um, let's see. Dun, dun, dun. This is a two-part question. Being a complete air, airplane geek and passionate about aviation, I do a lot of things to introduce people to our wonderful world. One of those things I do is talk about my job to school kids in Bombay. On occasion, I happen to speak at underprivileged schools. Now, when I say underprivileged, I'm talking seriously underprivileged. For example, their household income might be in the region of 200 to 250 US dollars a month. The strange thing is, though, that these kids seem to be genuinely interested in what I have to say, and they often make for the best audience. However, I have a personal dilemma. Knowing how financially intensive learning to fly is, I sometimes wonder if I am showing them dreams that they can't achieve. 
I was lucky enough to get into the cadet pilot program, so I didn't have to spend a buck to get my flying certificates. But opportunities opportunities like this are hard to come by in India. In fact, the only real option would be the armed forces, and even those aren't easy to get into. My question is, should I be daring them to dream, knowing fully well that their chances are slim? Am I actually doing a disservice to them by showing them this wonderful world? I feel this every time I conduct a talk session, and I would really like your take on it. I do have plans for setting up some sort of scholarship in the future, where at least some of the these kids could get a chance. So should I hold off the sessions until then? Also, do you have any tips on how to talk to kids about aviation? Okay, that's question one, which is a great question. Yeah, and it is. What do you think, Jeff? I, I see you uh, in my peripheral vision. I see I, you shaking I, your head. I have the perfect example. Dr. Ben Carson. He's a very famous, uh, he's working uh, for the government right now. His uh, story is he grew up in the slums of Detroit. Literally in poverty, just like those kids are living. He is a world-renowned surgeon at this point, brain surgeon. He was also a presidential candidate. He was also a presidential candidate in the 2016 elections. He is an unbelievably self-made man. He literally came out of the ghetto, the poor people. His mother had uh, basically a second-grade education, and uh, every night she would grade their homework, even though half of it she couldn't even read. She made them do book reports every weekend, sent them to the library to do book reports, she, and she would grade those. And she had look at what he has achieved. He's, you know, he's a self-made man. He came out of the gutter. Those kids have that opportunity even there. Yes. And encourage them to be all they can be. And that may sound lame, but some of them may get there, some of them may not. But all you can do is, you know, just have them be what the best that they can be. Study hard, and you can always get there somehow. It's not an easy road to hoe, but uh, they can get there. If you, with encouragement, anybody can do anything. And you even said, Shri, in your email here that you were lucky enough to get into a cadet pilot program so you didn't have to spend a buck to get your flying certificates. But uh, yes, maybe the opportunities like this are slim, hard to come by, but you did it. Why, why would you want not to have somebody else share that same dream and, and do the same thing? And uh, I don't know. I, I don't think you should... Uh, uh, it's easy for me to say, don't be concerned about it. Obviously, you have concern. We, people who have hearts, uh, are concerned about people that don't have as much as we. Uh, but you know, it looks like you have a plan to do something about that, and I don't think that you should wait until you have a scholarship program set up to start talking to people and instill into them this or inspire them to uh, to actually try to achieve this dream. My take on this is that by not um, engaging them and giving them a dream to aim at, you're doing them a dreadful disservice because you're more or less committing them to continue in a life of poverty, which will go into the next generation. Now, I think you're doing exactly the right thing. You, you uh, encourage them as best you can, even if you're unable to do this fantastic dream of, of setting up scholarship, a scholarship. Um, you just tell them that they are as good as anybody else. And I have absolutely no doubt some of them will believe you and some of them may even get there. But by not doing it, you, you are doing the opposite. You're driving them to 
stay in a, a situation of poverty, all of them, without any thoughts and dreams of, of improving themselves. Yeah, just a life of despair. I agree 100% with everything that was just said. All right. Very good. Well, that was an easy one to answer. Yeah. Yeah. Don't stop what you're doing, Shri. Um, he says, uh, question number two, what do you guys talk about in your CRM sessions at your airline? How long is the course? And do you do it along with any other people in the airline, like cabin crew engineers, or is it just for the pilots alone? Anything that you remember in particular that you learned from your CRM course? Just wanted to know how Acme compared to Acme Red on this. So I'll tell you, uh, Shri, uh, Acme was one of the pioneers in um, introducing a CRM program many years ago. And it was really, really awesome. We would get together as part of our uh, recurrent training uh, for, I think, at least one full day, maybe two, but at least one full day of meeting with uh, flight attendants. And it was a great experience because there are so many assumptions that each group makes about the other and about what's happening on the other side of the cockpit door. And we, of course, make assumptions as to what is happening in the cabin. Uh, that And we really learn a lot by being together, talking about various situations, and uh, even going into um, like in simulated cabin trainers where they – they uh, have like smoke coming in and in the situation, how you're going to handle the situation. You know, Jeff, you're the captain on this one. You know, what kind of PA are you going to make? What kind of communications are you going to have with your cabin crew, et cetera? And it was, to me, very eye-opening. And it was great to have that communication. It really went a long way toward uh, improving uh, relations between the cabin crew and the pilot crew. And I think also um, – to increase the or enhance safety as well because of it. How about at, at uh, we your... had the same thing where we had uh, when I was a new hire, which was almost twenty years ago. We had a lot of CRM training where it was no kidding classroom academics and CRM. Now it's a, a major portion of, and I mean just like uh, Captain Jeff was saying at Ajax, it was the same way. We we would actually have classes not for an entire day, but for several hours with the flight attendants where we'd go over. Uh, different scenarios per se and how we would communicate with the cabin they would communicate with us how we would handle different things what different terminology met meant uh, now we don't meet with the flight attendants anymore that went away a couple of years ago a lot of our cm is crm is emphasized in our training uh, every time we go into the simulator it's a lot of the focus is on um, what we call uh, the swiss cheese model making sure that all the holes don't line up and how we as a crew handle that. Um, the instructors pretend they're the flight attendants. They pretend they're everybody. And as, you know, as the captain, you have a lot of chores to do in keeping everybody informed of what's going on. Um, it's still a very vital, important uh, part of what we do in our training. It's not identified as CRM so much as it used to be. And that's... Uh, it's more this threat management kind of thing and how you communicate with people uh, than it was before. And again, it's it's this the sim stress that the simulator sessions just stress this immensely and how we communicate and work as a team. How about over there at Acme Red? Well, we still meet with our cabin crew annually. Um, we, in fact, I'm just 
going to, before my next flight, do two days of office time, and that will include my SEP and uh, looking at all the fire extinguishers and radio uh, beacons and all the usual oxygen stuff that we do. But we will probably do an hour and a half, two hours with the cabin crew and a combined thing. And uh, it'll involve um, combined exercises, scenarios, what would we do as a crew, uh, discussing how we set up. And then we do each group does a little presentation to the rest of the audience brings out all the points all this kind of usual stuff so that will be a combined effort uh, we will probably sit through um a rig exercise where the cabin crew do their evacuation drills and practice emergencies that sort of thing and we as pilots will get another shorter session just uh, with our instructor scp so crm sorry instructor um doing more pilot-orientated stuff. And in addition, uh, we get assessed on our CRM every time we're in the simulator. So I think we have a lot of emphasis. And I, I'm still glad we stick with the combined stuff, although sometimes it just ends up with a bit of a bitching session, um, but not <laughs> often, you know, uh, because, you know, that sometimes, you know, we some if you've got some people who can express themselves well, and explain exactly what they're getting at, then that works well. Other times, you've got crew that just want to have a moan, uh, and there's nothing specific. They just want to have a go at, you know, a perceived... Uh, Why are you so negative, uh, Captain Nick? I mean, you, you need yeah. to stop that. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But uh, no, I, uh, I think it's all valuable. Uh, particularly to some of my age with uh, less than three months to go. Okay, rub it in. Yeah. It uh, it just occurred to me that next week I am uh, renewing my ACLS certification, my Advanced Cardiac Life Support uh, certification, and that's actually very much a team-oriented, um, maybe not crew resource management in the strictest sense. In that, you know, there's uh, well, actually, I think I think it probably is because everyone has a very specific role in what to do if you show up to an emergency like this in an organized setting where you have um, folks who can take on the different prescribed roles of being the leader, being the person who records what's going on, being the person who um, administers medications, being the person who works on doing chest compressions, being the person who works on um, defibrillating. So everyone's got a place and a role. And the idea is that it works very well, but there's also room for uh, everyone to think about the process and know what's going on so that if someone's caught up in their moment and the job that they're doing, Someone else can say, "Hey, you know, did you think about this?" And have it be a not a criticism, but just a, you know, let's all make sure we're we're doing what we're supposed to be doing for the benefit of the, the patient. Yeah, so. it's helpful not only to know what you are supposed to do, but also what everybody else in your team is Correct. supposed to be doing. And everyone's supposed to know all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and everyone takes turns during the training, ro rotating through all of those roles, even though that's not exactly what happens in a real life situation. Um, but I'm curious to see. It's been a few years since I've actually done this training, so I'm curious to see how they've changed it if it's gone more to computer-based training which is what has happened with the basic life support stuff as well and less actual hands-on role-playing practice um, i hope not because it really spends it in your brain when you have to stand there and, and role play all the different roles and know exactly what's going on sadly that's you know that's the reality for uh, at yeah. least at the u.s major legacy carriers that uh, it's all focused on you know computer-based training and you know 
just a very, very brief period of time that you have to knock out all the things that you're required to go through. And unfortunately, I mean, I, I love the company I fly for, but I just wish that we had the resources and the time to put into yeah, spending that half a day at least with the, with real people and talking about these situations together. I think it would go a long way to enhance. And Steph, you have a real life experience to share when you go to this training. If you, oh, yeah. that in-flight medical you had where you had the emergency room doctor who basically took charge, mm-hmm. which was the yeah. perfect way to do that. Yep. And uh, you can probably share that experience and people will learn a lot from that, that mm-hmm. you, that experience and you shared on the podcast at one time. It's interesting because most people who are doing this particular course work in the hospital setting and do respond to codes regularly. So they're, they're getting a lot of the real world experience, but in the, the hospital setting. Um, but it is nice from a, a outside of that environment where things have the potential to be much more chaotic because that can happen in the hospital too. I've responded to codes that happen not on a regular medical floor and no one knows where the equipment is or you encounter folks who are technically certified to do this but really aren't comfortable and they don't want to be in the role that they're that everyone else is expecting them to maybe take charge of and be in. So um, yeah, those are all good good anecdotal things to to share so people think a little bit outside of the box in case they're in uh they encounter it somewhere where they don't expect to awesome well thanks for your input stuff um let's see shri ends by saying peace p.s postscript i recently made captain in my airline your show well, congratulations, by the way, Shreeland. Yeah, good job. Yeah, your show with mm-hmm. all your different perspectives played a real part in shaping my career. I only listened to the 50% that you get right. <laughs> Thank you. Nice. Nice. Does, we need to contact him. Around. How does he oh, figure that out? Yeah. How does he know? <laughs> he's he's smarter button. than we are. That's yeah, apparently so. It's a filter button. Uh, you found it. Yeah, no, that's true. And as a small thank you, I've made a small donation to the coffee fund. Yes, thank you very much, Shri. Appreciate that. And then post-postscript, on a recent visit to the Pima Air Museum, I took a picture for you. I managed to get two of the airplanes that you used to fly in one frame and was going to send it to you with some snide comment about airplanes you flew being in the museum. Trust me, Shri, it wouldn't be the first person to give me snide comments about the all the retired fleet of airplanes I've flown. Anyway, until I turned around and saw my current airplane there, too. Aha! See? How's that feel? Uh, In any case, uh, we both fly legendary airplanes that are being preserved for generations to see. Yep, that must be it. Especially since I didn't see any Airbuses around. Ooh, Ooh, burn. Yes! (laughs) Well, they're not old enough to go to museums yet. (laughs) Oh, really? And nobody wants them. There are a lot of oh, Airbuses that are on our property that uh, are older than the airplane I'm flying, by the way. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. They made them into beer cans is what it was. <laughs> okay. That's enough <laughs> of the <laughs> Boeing <laughs> Airbus. What'd you say, Steph? They made them into luggage tags. Luggage tags. Ooh. That's, ooh. <laughs> it's even better. <laughs> yeah, plenty, Gosh. plenty of Boeing luggage they, tags. They, weren't, they <laughs> weren't good enough to be beer cans. That's what it was. Oh, okay. Let's, All right, let's of that. shift off of that. Thank you, Shree, for your feedback. We do appreciate it. And yeah, keep going with the inspiring young people of all backgrounds. To, I like uh, Shree. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, so, you know, we were talking about uh, Deanna's feedback and I don't know how uh, must somebody must have sent out the bat signal or something, but uh, she jumped into the chat room and she says, I'm here. And he, she says, 
Uh, I was desperately trying to get my laptop to turn on so I could respond. Yes, I flew again and did better the second time. Yay, figured out how to taxi in a straight line. <laughs> well, not a bit, not having too many drinks would help. Yeah, that's true. Yep. It does take um, some time that, to figure out the whole line. Yeah, go ahead. That straight line taxi is great. Uh, it's the corners. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The tricky part. Yeah, the tricky part. <laughs> yeah. And then she said that she is going back out again on Saturday. That's awesome. Well done, Deanna. Yes, well Good done, job. Deanna. And she said that uh, if there was a scholarship for student pilots, I would donate. Student loans suck. It took, it took her uh, 18 years to pay off her vet school loans. Yikes. Oh, jeez. Yeah, but she said at least it got me a vet, veterinary degree, so that's good. And vet school is not cheap. No, that's mm -hmm. very difficult to get into as well. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, very good. Thank you, Deanna, for uh, being there with us in the chat room. And uh, let's see, do we have time to do any more feedback? I think I saw an, a note from Liz that said we had just under 20 minutes left. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, yeah, I reckon we've got at least a quarter of an hour. Okay. At most. Well, um, Captain Nick, do you know how international border air crossings work? I don't. Yeah. Uh, this is from Steve. He says, hi, ABG. Love your show. And thank you so much for the detailed and thoughtful feedback to the question about using offline maps and GPS in the cabin. My next curiosity is about what happens behind the scenes when passenger aircraft cross international borders, especially the U.S. airspace border. The image I always get from Hollywood is that the U.S. Air Force is tracking planes on radar, and when an aircraft gets too close to the U.S. airspace, the radar operators alert their commander, who then scrambles jets to meet that rogue aircraft in the sky before it reaches the U.S. coast. Oh, he's not talking about... Uh, like scheduled airline flights, I guess. No. Okay. Uh, in reality, thousands of aircraft legitimately, legitimately cross into U.S. airspace. So I'm wondering, what goes on behind the scenes from the pilot's perspective to ensure that the U.S. Air Force knows the passenger jet you're flying does, in fact, have permission to cross into U.S. airspace? Where's dispatcher, Mike? Yeah, he is the guy. You should be listening to the Flying in Life podcast. It's Having great. been that rogue air, airplane when I was in the military, yeah. It's it's interesting. Um, my understanding, having crossed the uh, what's called the ADIS Air Defense Intercept Zone uh, several times, and Nick does it every time he flies coming to the United States. Yes, you are being tracked by the U.S. Air Force. Uh, but if you have a flight plan from an approved carrier, it's not an issue. Uh, the the dispatch agencies, the companies fly what's called a diplomatic clearance, and you are cleared to do that. I was actually airborne one time when a uh, a charter airplane was trying to fly in the Havana airspace, and that they had not filed the correct dip clearance, and Havana would not let them through, so they had to turn around and go back to Miami. Um, the Air Force does monitor. Uh, I had an F fifteen doing an exercise in the Gulf of Mexico. And I was very far south in the Gulf, and I was northbound at 49,000 feet doing about Mach 1.2. And all of a sudden, on the guard frequency, I hear, unknown rider, unknown rider. This is the United States Air Force on guard, aircraft at this altitude and this lat long. And I look down, I go, oh, yeah, that's me. Oops. <laughs> um, <laughs> identify yourself immediately, because my transponder was uh, not working. <laughs> and, uh -huh. uh, yeah, it was interesting. So, the... Uh, the other two airplanes had to intervene uh, before they scrambled the uh, the jets out of, uh, I guess it would have been Tyndall at the time, was where the air defense guys were, uh, to come after me. 
So they shoot it, you down? No, they didn't no. even launch because we were able to identify what was going on. So uh, that does happen. Um, I was in charge of our alert facility when I was stationed in New Mexico, and every once in a while we'd get a scramble in the middle of the night for some guy who was lost uh, crossing the U.S. border. Uh, one time it was a dentist. He was flying back and forth across the Rio Grande at about 5,000 feet, lost bigger than Dallas. So hmm. it happens. Interesting. Uh, I have a Big similar- brother is watching. Yeah. They're all watching. I have a similar curiosity about all the international flights that cross through Russia and China on their way from Europe and the U.S. to Asian destinations. I know Russia earns a lot of revenue to, for charging for overnight or over overnight access, <laughs> over flight access. <laughs> so that's something entirely different. Uh, so how does the Russian military, who in 1983 infamously shot down Korean Airlines Flight 007 for crossing into their airspace. How do they know that a specific passenger jet has paid its fee in order to cross over? What do pilots have to communicate or keep track of to ensure everything goes smoothly regarding crossing into another country's airspace before and during the flight? Thank you so much for your insight. And again, that's from Steve. And you know all about this, don't you, Jeff? As well, much international I mean, flying as you used do. to do, but um, you know, years and years and years ago, I knew something about this. But I think Captain Nick might be. Yeah, Nick would the, be no more recent stuff yeah. than I do. Well, yeah, we go regularly through Russia and China, and it's in a similar way to uh, the way Handsome Jeff uh, described. Um, if you've got a flight plan filed and you're going through Russia at your call sign, you'll be well documented, uh, and uh, when you come onto the border. Um, you will have previously been identified, and you'll be now identified by the Russian authorities. And uh, they will track you going through, and you go on air routes. You don't tend to get direct routings like we do over uh, middle of Europe. Uh, you definitely fly on an airway. And if you deviate even a mile or two from the center of that airway, the air, air traffic control will be on you like nobody's business. So um, you do fly a much more restricted uh, routing, and you are, generally speaking, uh, speaking to military controllers, and their sectors are very small, and there are continual handovers, and you'll pass from one sector to the next as you go through. Um, China, in a similar way, they have very strict uh, air traffic regulations, and you uh, maintain continuous contact with them, and they keep a very close eye. And don't forget, all these are radar monitored. The, it's not like going over a big ocean where there are no radars. Uh, you're overland all the time, and their military and or civil radars will keep a very close eye on what you're doing. Um, yeah. Uh, and don't forget, uh, we haven't uh, that long been getting easy clearance to fly across Russia. Um, since I was a captain, um, we never used to be allowed to fly over Russia except uh, on one or two specific flights. Now we do it regularly. Uh, I do remember our first Hong Kong flight that went over uh, Russia. Uh, we'd been granted permission, filed the flight plan. It wasn't me. It was another captain. And uh, he got as far as Moscow, and they uh, the word obviously hadn't got through to the air traffic controllers that we had the clearances, the diplomatic and government-level clearances to go through. So they scrambled fighters to him yeah. uh, and who escorted him to Moscow and made him land there. And then they demanded 
payment for fuel and other things, uh, landing fees, etc., in cash, which they didn't have, wouldn't accept any credit cards. So the captain had to do a whip round from the passengers, get enough cash for them to fly back to London. They wouldn't let them continue with their journey. Mm. The next day, I was flying those passengers on another flight because now apparently it had all been sorted out and we set off again to try and do this journey. And this time it worked seamlessly because I suspect uh, the message in the fork stick had finally got through to the people on the ground that, yes, it's okay for this particular Acme Red flight to go through. But, yeah, things do happen sometimes. Uh, however, I, I would mention that uh, 172 once landed in Red Square and the Russians didn't manage to uh, find that or shoot it down. So, um, Welcome yeah, to Russia. A, yeah, that was a German uh, chap who yeah. decided to fly as 172 at Red Square, and he, he made it successfully. So nothing uh, is impossible. Oh, and... <laughs> And don't forget, I think it was the Israelis that managed to bomb somewhere in the Middle East by uh, hiding their fighters under the wing of a cargo aircraft, Mm -hmm. uh, disguising themselves uh, under the same uh, radar blip, and with that pilot unwittingly using his flight plan and uh, transponder code to uh, hide these aircraft. And as they approached the airport, they accelerated ahead and bombed the devil out of it <laughs> uh, what he landed on i'm not sure because by the time he got there there wasn't much left of it oh boy didn't they like bomb some nuclear facilities or something that was in syria no but this was a. Uh, oh yeah they bombed an iranian one too yeah ago, it was yeah. iran uh, iran i think yeah it? yeah interesting you know american airlines had when they first got their 787s they had <clears> one takeoff out of uh beijing and because of the strict radar control by the military there, um, they got forced to fly through a hailstorm. And it just about totaled the airplane. Um, oh, good Lord. And, uh, we had one that, uh, that happened to it was too. It was very interesting because it was the first time one of the 7-8s had had any structural damage. The radome, right. the leading edge of the winds, and, and it being all composite material, I was wondering how they were going to fix it. So this American jet ended up being the... Uh, Guinea pig? Yeah, the guinea pig, and setting the standard on how to fix the composite uh, material on the aircraft. Were they able to repair it? Oh, yeah, the airplane was back online about three or four months later. Oh. And going in and out of India, to this day, you need to get an air defense uh, identification zone number because you have, they have very strict uh, regulations going in and out of military. Uh, sorry, out of India uh, with regards to um, the military control of the airspace. And if you don't have that number, you you aren't getting out of India. So, uh, yeah, it still happens. Wow. It's fascinating stuff. A lot of behind-the-scenes work, Steve, and paperwork and diplomatic clearances and all that kind of stuff. Hmm? Three hours. Yeah. We're, we're at the end of our show, sadly. And Bye. Uh, Thanks for coming. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> we have a little bit more to talk about before we do that, oh. uh, Captain Nick. I know you're... Eager to leave. (laughs) Um, He wants to go to bed. Kind of getting late. Um, But uh, we have some feedback that we didn't get to on this week's episode, so we'll try to get to it next time. Uh, Alan has a question about fear of flying. Uh, Brian sent us some audio feedback. Cosley as well. Um, Ruben, John, 
Cameron and Ham Radio Jim with some uh, interesting information about a special starfighter, the NF-104. And we're going to talk about all of that and more on our next show, hopefully. And if you want to learn more about the show, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com. And uh, we have apps for your iOS device and your Android platforms. And look for them in the associated app stores. It's free, ad-free. Great way to keep in touch with the podcast and the community. And even better way to keep up with the APG community is to follow us on social media. Yes, please do. Hey, by the way, did you guys impersonate my voice for the uh, social media last week, too? Mm, no, I don't no. think so. Okay. I don't <laughs> think they did it. I don't think so. <laughs> did it we? Hurt, it hurt too much the first yeah, time. Yeah, I think I don't remember doing it last week. <laughs> they did. <laughs> okay. Anyway, they forgot. Uh, social media. You can follow us on Twitter. Use the handle at APG Crew. Find all of our individual information pinned uh, to the top of that page in a tweet. And you can also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Lots of good community interaction there and folks sharing information regarding news stories, interesting aviation. Uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? It's late for me too, Nick. Stuff. To go to bed. <laughs> stuff. <laughs> interesting <laughs> aviation stuff. Yeah. And potentially some uh, meetup uh, information. And for more information about that type of stuff. Should I let him out now? Yeah. Hello. Get out. Come on out. Come on out. Hello. Here we go. Make room for him. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and Plain Tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at AirlinePilotGuy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1, Hotel India, 1-1, Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. And uh, as you said, join up, join the team. It's a great place to hang out and find out information about our APG community events and until well oh and again happy birthday to our producer she does such a fine job in uh, helping us with the show happy birthday Liz and until next time wishing you clear skies unlimited visibility and tailwinds talons Douglas bye everybody cheers y'all good night all Good day.